I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I am joined by a couple of guests. I have Sean Smith, the superintendent at Sullivan County Golf Course, which is up in the Catskills, um, and a a golf course that he has breathed a lot of new life in uh, with also the help of Tom Coyne, who's uh, come on board to help out this year um, and possibly into the future, a golf course really on the rise. And Sean has just really an amazing life story uh, with golf and and life in general. So it was great to talk to him about his life and uh, his life in turf. And then in the second part of this uh, interview, uh, we talk with Tyler Ray. So Tyler, it's been a number of years since I last talked to Tyler. And since uh, Tyler's career has really exploded, he's gone from being a shaper and occasional solo architect to really a a solo architect that has a number of high-profile jobs. So it was really great to uh, chop it up with Tyler about growing his business, um, as well as some of the projects that they're working on, um, have in the hopper, and um, you know, new build versus restoration, all sorts of stuff. So this is a jam-packed podcast with a couple uh, interviews. And uh, yeah, let's get right into it. Here uh, is Sean Smith, but first... Let's take a quick break to uh, hear about our sponsor, Toro. For more than a century, with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine, too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Now on to Sean Smith. All right, Sean, I, I'd love to know from your perspective uh, where modern agronomy has gone wrong. Oh, start out with a light one. I don't. I don't know that modern agronomy has gone wrong. I think modern agronomy has gone so right in so many different ways, and given people the ability and the opportunity to provide conditions like anywhere and everywhere, that pretty much anyone and everyone who can will kind of rise to that bar, and the bar has been set like really high. I mean, I was looking at old. Uh, I grew up, I didn't start playing golf until like the late nineties. And I grew up watching like senior golf on the couch, like after high school. And it was, I was watching some of those YouTube videos and the courses look so different. I mean, they don't look bad for my eye at all, but just the conditions everywhere have been raised so much that I think it costs so much money um, to get the equipment, maintain the equipment, maintain the workforce 
that if there's anything that's gone wrong, it's just the scale of it all. And it's become very hard to provide golf for current people's tastes. That's maybe a little bit toned down. Yeah. In a way it it creates a a gap, right? It just creates a wider gulf between the haves and the have nots really from a maintenance standpoint, right? Very much so. Uh, When I moved from Queens to Liberty here, I didn't know anything about my golf course here then, but like the situation they were in and it's really common for, you know, you want to call them mom and pop golf courses or just, you know, very small. There's a lot of them in the Northeast that, you know, they're just small courses that are attached to small towns and they were operating, you know, the fleet of equipment that I inherited was from the late nineties. You know, it was already, all of it was pushing 15, 20, 25 years old. It was only being maintained by the skill of like one person who also was responsible for, you know, more than half the mowing out there. Um, Parts very hard to get. And they were operating on a negative budget. Like there's no board meetings. There's no green committee to approve budgets. It's just ask for what you need and don't ask for much. And that's, that's, still the reality at a lot of places. We're going to get to uh, your career, but just something that popped up uh, with what you're talking about, I'd love for you to kind of contrast is how your job was different when you were on a crew at a, a you know, high-end private club versus where you're working now, Sullivan County, where you and one other person are taking care of the course, the equipment, everything. Like, can you just talk about how your day to day is different in those two situations? Sure. I mean, there's there's the basics that you have to cover, the things that people are just going to expect no matter what if they're playing golf, and that's like the greens and you know some form of a tee box <laughs> to to get off on. Um, and after that, and it's not a frustrating experience. And it is just me and one other person full-time. This year, we have two members who are like younger retired guys who each help us two days a week. So like four days a week, there's three guys on the course instead of two, but it's still a lot. So it's just like priorities, triage, you know, you you get the greens done, you take care of the greens First and foremost, um, we only have nine irrigation heads. Each green is serviced by like a roller-based sprinkler. Um, but it's, you see a lot of things you want to do, but it's greens and then it's getting the fairways cut and springs are very hard because it's growing faster than you can mow it. And the course looks bad until you can finally turn the corner. And on a, on a larger crew at a, you know, on a course with a bigger budget, all of those things, just because of the number of people involved, you're able to keep Mother Nature under your thumb a little bit easier throughout the 12 months. You know, we, we don't work for four or five months out of the year. Um, and hopefully that changes. But, you know, that's just been a budgetary reality up until now. So it's, it's just you, you have to learn to relish your victories you know, take care of what you can take care of, do your best with everything else. It, it, you know, with hard work and repeated mowings, it does all come around. I mean, the, the course looks great right now. It's 
middle of July, <laughs> you know, it, it, we, we came around a, a few weeks ago, but it, things don't happen as quick at the snap of a finger. You know, bunkers don't get don't bunkers don't get raked at the same time greens get mowed at the same time tees get mowed at the same time fairways get mowed. We have the gracious, gracious help of Toro this year. They set us up with a greens mower, a fairway mower, a blower, a work cart, and just it's been a it's night and day the difference it's caused. But it's still we have one fairway mower and. There's only three people to put in those five or six seats. So things don't get done all at once, you know, at the snap of a finger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's got to feel a little bit different in terms of accomplishment though. When you, when you get to the point of, of where it's like you said, it's looking really good right now. There's got to be a little bit different feeling associated with that. Right. It does. It's a large, a good portion of like personal pride. Um, and even though it's just like me and my guy, Chris, day in, day out, like there's still that camaraderie that you get on a larger crew. And maybe it's even intensified because <laughs> I'm a superintendent, you know, and I'm I got one or two other guys, you know, I'm not out there planning our days. There's no morning meeting. You know, we're just looking over our shoulder all day, filling the gaps. And you know what I mean? Like it would be silly. You know, so my job's not normal from that standpoint, but there's a huge, huge, like intense pride that me and Chris share, especially this year, seeing the change and seeing like all the new golfers who are happy, but even more so like the old Liberty golfers who have been around the whole time and have, are seeing the change. And they, you know, they know it's just us still, but it's like with a little bit of extra help. And it's, it's so it's, it, it's a lot of pride. Um, I, I love being out there, like being on a fairway mower or mowing greens or doing whatever it is out there is exactly the same as golfing to me. Like being on the golf course, it's, you could put me on the tee, some golf, say national golf links, never played there. And first tee and hand me a fairway mower in my golf bag and it's a coin flip on what I might choose that day. Like what I want to do. Like it's very much very similar feeling. I get out there, anything I'm doing on the golf course. So what's, what's the one job that you do that would like auto, you would go for golf. You're you, you've used the fairway and the green mower. What's the one that if you is like, you can do this from a maintenance side or golf, it would just be a no brainer. I'm going, I'm going to play golf. Oh, something I hate, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I hate anything to do with irrigation. And that's not really coming from like a firm and fast standpoint, although I'm there too. Like, I just hate that part of the job. I hate pipes. I hate stuff I can't see. It's very boring. We don't have to irrigate too much here. We didn't irrigate the whole month of July because the weather just cooperated. Um, I, I just hate days when we have to water. Because we can't water every day here. When we water, we have to water a little heavy. And if it's hot and dry, we got to do it two or three times a week. And it just sucks. Like, I'd rather be golfing. But that's the time when, like, you can't do anything else because it's life or death. You know, this is my um, uneducated, the uneducated host here. But how do you know when you need to water? Like, I think most people that most people that are listening that aren't turf professionals, that are homeowners, that might have sprinkler systems that go on all the time. Like when do you, how do you know you need to, to water versus letting it ride for a month? Well, 
this month was easy. I mean, we were never overly wet. We never got more than a couple inches at a time. We got two or three of those and enough to fill in the gaps. Um, but we went the entire, it was the month of May, like, which is normally our spring, our wettest month. No rain. We had 18 hundredths of an inch of measurable rain for the month of May. So by the end of May, it looked like it did last year in September at the end of a little drought we had. And it was crazy. And we were having to water. A lot of the grass was slow to come in because that's normally when it fills in and tries to grow. Um, so it was very obvious then. Um, a lot of it's just experience. And a lot of it is your course. I have nine greens. They're pretty tiny. I don't have like a ton of traffic. Um, we don't cut at exceptionally low heights. So I have some leeway and they never get out of control in the sense that I can turn them around really quick. I don't have acres of greens out there. You know what I mean? I have less than an acre of green space, but you, you just, you, you know, you know what you're shooting for. Generally, you're trying to maintain a dry product. Dry greens mow better. They perform better. They're less disease prone. Um, but when they start to turn colors in the high spots and the spots that you know from experience are dry, you know, when you start to see the grass go from a nice vibrant green to maybe a shade of blue or gray like that, a lot of guys are looking at footprints. You make a footprint on a hot, sunny day and it stays there. And the grass just kind of stays put. That's when it's time to hit them. Um, I don't use water meters. Um, this sound, like the little... sounds a lot. This sounds a lot like somebody that's just got a good feel of the grill, like where yeah, yeah. You just, like you know when you when you push the meat, it's you can feel it in your finger in your hand when it's done. Right. right. You got this. Yeah. You got the little cooler spot over here, and this little piece of chicken's about there. So you move it over there. The greens are just like that. It's it's exactly like that. We could do the rest of the podcast on food restaurant analogies when it comes to golf course maintenance, in my opinion. What's the, what's I, I, the I best just think one? there's give us I give us one. Give us one. I don't know. Um oh like a daily one. Let's just talk from like a uh what do you what would you call it? And well they're called condiments at a restaurant. Ketchup on the table. Like if you go into a nice restaurant and you ask for ketchup on the table or something, that's like coming to me and asking for a ball washer on a tee. Like <laughs> there's like, I, 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 I know you like ketchup. I know you like your balls clean, like whatever, but that that's a bad one. But no, I just so think just gonna from, say, that's what the towel's for. And you say, you know, <laughs> on the golf course, that's what you got to get yourself a towel. I explain it to people. It, it 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 does shut them up, but it, the ball washer is absurd. I don't even know where those come from. Like, <laughs> I mean, the crazier thing is when you see the price of what one of those ball washer costs. They're crazy. Everything in golf is expensive because golf is a relatively rich sport, and they're no different. Oh yeah, it's you put a handful of ball washers out there, you're in for a few grand, like several grand. And over the lifespan, forget it. Like, oh, Moraine Country Club, February. Like, just sand in parade ball washers. Get, you got to get in the little nooks where it says parade, and then you got to paint them all over again. It's, it's awful. Yeah. Don't make your golf course do that. Yeah. Sign, like, signs, all those things. Like, the, 
the like the standard I was shocked and like alarmed when I found out what those like you know the the signs the benches the the ball washers the trash yeah. cans the things that like those quintessential items that you see at golf courses when I found out how much they cost I was like wait, I was appalled honestly yeah, yeah, yeah. um it was like you, you know like you could almost shop at crate and barrel for for less money than through a, one of the golf course mm-hmm. accessory magazines. but no it's like that it's like going from the target website to the crate and barrel website as far as like the price is going up if you go from like normal landscape stuff to golf landscape stuff it's just like 10x it's and it's the same stuff it's crazy um let's talk a little bit about your life uh and uh how how you got into the golf course maintenance uh, world? Wanted to wanted somewhere to play golf for free. I mean, that was it. I grew up in Kansas City, like in a suburb of Kansas City on the Kansas side, Lenexa, Kansas. Um, a lot of kids want to get the hell out of Kansas as soon as they can. I, I wasn't going to college right away. So me and my cousin had a chance to move to Dayton, Ohio. My aunt had a apartment in her attic that she was willing to let us use free of charge for a little bit. So we packed up his civic and went there. I had just been getting into the game of golf. Um, I was working at a skateboard shop. Um, My dad always took me to the putt putt and he always took me to the driving range. So I was doing that stuff growing up. And he was a guy who played a couple times a year, like with the company and stuff. Uh, and we were heavily into sports, but golf wasn't our thing so much. But I was getting into it right out of high school, teaching myself to play. Got to Dayton, Ohio. My aunt lived within, it was, I figured it out. It was like a two mile radius. There was 108 holes of golf right there where she lived was Dayton Country Club, Community Golf Course, Moraine Country Club, NCR. And that's just like a nice strand there in Dayton. Great golf town. But I, so I I started putting in applications. Um, I'd done a little landscaping here and there. Um, My dad, one of his jobs when I was little, he managed, was a general manager at a big softball complex in Kansas City. And he did a lot of the work on the fields there. So we always did a bit of that. And traveling around as a kid, when we'd go to like different cities, he would take me to like Yankee Stadium or like, LA, we'd go to the Rose Bowl or like Notre Dame Stadium, wherever we were at, we'd go, even if it was like the middle of the day, nothing like we'd be at like the chain link fans trying to look in at the field and stuff. So we were into that, but I, I was just getting the golf as a player. It was the Tiger Woods era, um, wanted free golf because I was broke. Me and my cousin were working at the bagel shop up the street from Moraine. I put in an application at Moraine thinking it was NCR. (laughs) <laughs> and then I went up the road and put in an application and asked them what course it was. And they said it was NCR. And I filled one out anyway. And then by the time I had gotten home, uh, the superintendent at Moraine, Jerry Overbay, had already called and left a message with my grandma. So <laughs> one thing led to another. He hired me. I was probably 20-ish. This was 90, 2021. This was probably like 98. Um, and I started working the crew and lucky for me, Moraine had like a super open culture, at least at that point, I haven't been back in a couple years anyway, 
Um, but I could play once he knew I wasn't going to quit after a couple of weeks and I was into golf, like he got me on the course, like immediately he'd get me on the course on week, you know, normal weekday afternoons. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, I was there for seven years, the better part, um, learned everything there really the learned love of golf. You know, this was pre and it wasn't pre internet, but it was like early internet. So I, 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 I didn't become like an architecture head or anything at that point, but that's a pretty good course to cut your teeth on. Even yeah. at that point, I mean, there were a lot more trees there, but you know, it was still, everything was there. The um, land, the land is unbelievable yeah, there. Yeah. And the land hasn't changed. It's, it's a great strip of land there. Like all those golf courses on that little strand share mm -hmm. that land. There's like six golf courses, but great little strip. Um, Just a little yeah. pop pocket of Nipper Campbell there. But anyway, that's that's how I got into turf. Like I got into I had a lot of free golf, instantly loved mowing greens, kind of uh worked my way out of just doing like sand traps and trap banks, you know, all week every week. Uh Jerry trusted me with course setup pretty early, like the second season. Like I was doing course setup and stuff at Moraine. Um really got into it. Um Do you and it do you know took it from there? If, have you ever thought about back like when you started doing uh, doing turf at Moraine, what it was that like specifically that really appealed to you about it? Yeah. And I had a very I think about it a lot because there was a good little vibrant community there among us, among people who worked on golf courses like Mondays. It was either like we were hosting at Moraine on maintenance Monday afternoons or we were going to someone else's course. And there was a lot of competition among golf courses, like whose was the best and stuff. And we got to play all the best in that area. Um, and I was always very adamant that Moraine was the best. And back in the day, I'd tell you Cincinnati, Dayton, Columbus, that whole stretch. And there's some competition there. I still think it holds up pretty good. Um, but there would always be that competition. And I didn't know what it was because I couldn't talk about it then like I could now. But it was definitely, there was something about Moraine that was like, you'd you you, you you'd get in like streaks with your game or something. Have you ever Have you ever been to a course and like your game, you knew it wasn't on or something, or maybe you knew the course was long or something, but somehow the course conditions or just the course itself kind of like negated all that. And you could either punch it around and get around or like distance didn't matter. Like as much as you thought it does on the card or something, Moraine just has a way of kind of negating styles of play. Um, and I think it's because it's one of the more natural courses in that area. It's a very, I mean, it's, it's an up and down course, like, and it goes up and down like twice. And I don't know, I could just always, if you're playing really well, it could kind of, uh, hit you around a little bit. If you weren't playing well, even back in the tree days, like you weren't losing balls there. Um, when you got on those small greens, you always had a chance there, but it was really hard to get there. Um, and there's also like just kind of intangible things. There's like a rhythm to that course, the way like the 
kind of the the 16th and the 7th green sit there next to each other and they they meet at kind of the same spot in each nine and they're kind of like weird cousins of each other they sit in the same spot of the land they're push-ups with bunkers on each side they come down a hill and then the next two holes do the same thing it's two par fives now and there's like this cool symmetry and almost a a sense of humor to the design every hole is very different but there's a lot of familiarity out there it's a it's very, very good golf course. Yeah. Um, so where'd you go after Moraine? Moraine? Oh, I went on the wagon or off the wagon or whatever. They go. I don't know. So my life in Dayton was like, wake up at four, get to the golf course, work my ass off, go home, either take a nap or go to the driving range or something or hit balls if I wasn't playing. And then it was music. Like I was a pretty serious guitar player at that time. And my friend, Will Cope, him and I played like at bar joints and like beer, like beer joints in Dayton, Ohio, and even traveled around like West Virginia and Kentucky and Pennsylvania and stuff. And we were kind of serious musicians, uh, drank a lot, partied a lot. Um, so after Moraine, you know, I was kind of, my life kind of was getting more and more unsustainable and the alcohol kind of got out of control, ended up going back home for a little bit, ended up coming back to Moraine for a little bit. Um, the guitar and all that kind of art life eventually led me on a trip to New York. Um, soon as I got there, I kind of fell in love with it. Um, that's kind of how New York city is, but like I was only going to stay there for two weeks with some friends and ended up and that's, I, I essentially never left, you know, I kind of picked up my things and stuff, but yeah. I, between more rain and New York city, I kind of lived a hard life and lived even a harder life. My first few years in New York city before kind of getting my stuff together. And it was just alcoholism. It was just, you know, selfish living and drinking too much and not listening to anybody. And one thing led to another, you know, I, I ended up doing fits and starts at rehabs, um, you know, but it took three or four like residential rehabs up here in New York. Um, thank God we have those for people here um, before I really got my shit together. Um, and then ended up finally, you know, this puts me at, 2010 2011 met the girl who would become my wife um kind of got more serious about things um started using my skills in the city in horticulture um ended up doing at a pretty high level um like terrace gardens and green walls and all the kind of uh plantings that you see in like big cities yeah. Um, even like, like, even like down to like brownstone gardens, you know, people's backyards and stuff, but a lot of like, uh, big, big downtown Manhattan stuff, uh, tech companies and stuff, huge green walls and terraces way up in the sky, uh, worked for a great company called Blondie's Treehouse in the city, uh, under an amazing horticulturalist. Her name was, uh, Bojana Buds, Buz, Budzik. Sorry. I still have trouble spitting that whole name out. We call her Bo. 
but she was a Polish horticulturalist and she had, she was in charge of all the interior plants for blondies that they did. And I think we had like 800 accounts in the city. We had a crew of like 25, 30 uh, interior horticulture techs. And it was kind of like a crew at a big golf course. You know, we'd have, we'd have weekly meetings, not morning meetings and like crews would go everywhere. And it was a really cool job. When I left there, I was kind of doing my job ended up being when they would do a new install, I would kind of show up on the scene, check the plants um, and kind of scope it out and take care of it for the first couple of weeks, see what it was going to need, what it was going to take from like a personnel standpoint, a water standpoint to maintain it and kind of set up the maintenance program with Bo and uh it was really cool. Worked at places like uh, Google and their campus down there. Uh, we did Facebook. Uh, we did Museum of Modern Art, big green wall there, uh, World Trade Center, all those buildings there. Really exciting job. Very difficult job. What What did that job teach you that you were able to take later to turf and golf? Pers- Coming back, like at that level, especially when you're kind of dealing with the installation process and doing big plantings in a downtown area. Um, you know, as much as 70, 80 stories high, the, the, the logistics are really, really frustrating when you, especially when these buildings are going up, everyone's trying to do everything with these buildings at the same time from fleshing the offices out to doing the electrical. And you're trying to get up there with bags of soil and live plants and bags of mulch or what have you up freight elevators and the logistics are just really frustrating um and then then once you get them in there they're beautiful projects but the stresses that the plants are under are very unique there it's a lot of exposure um the sunlight can either be non-existent or almost like omnipresent um you're dealing in a huge heat island effect so I, I learned a lot just about like plant physiology, what plants can take, what they can't. Cause you're, you know, you're, you're doing, you know, a multi-million dollar install that's, you know, a half acre of new ground cover or flowers or something. And it's 92 degrees on the ground. And you know, your plants are up there on the 50th floor on a South facing highly windy and they're in three inches of like soilless plant mixture. Like it's just, it's really under the gun. Like it, and a lot of like at golf courses, really high end golf courses, like the most stressful job on that whole property will be like the assistant superintendents on a hot summer day, chasing around, keeping greens alive, you know, under heavy play um, and never, never getting them too wet. But that's very equivalent to that. In your, but you're trying to do it. You might have, so it's like having greens spread out all over Manhattan and one greens on the 50th floor down here on 14th street. And then you got to go to the other one that's on the 12th floor on, you know, East 79th. And you got to check two or three of these spots in a day. You got to be taking the subway. You got, it's so it's, it's, it's crazy. You got to argue with the freight elevator guy, or you got to, you lost your ID or something. It's just, it's always, it's a whole different level of like logistics and things you don't think of that goes into it. 
just like little plants and offices. I I imagine that you can't have a fear of heights either at that point. You're you probably in some precarious. I always look at like window washers when I'm in a tall building. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. And in a way, you're doing even more with plants and stuff, right? Are you were you hanging from buildings? Never hanging from buildings. Um, I'm not afraid of heights, but I don't necessarily like them. And there were some properties that would give you that vertigo. But it, I mean, it was mainly terraces. You know, you're walking out okay. from inside. Okay. And it wasn't like out there, out there. No, the, the craziest wall I had was in inside the Google campus. We had like two two green walls that were like pillars of plants, like six feet on each side. And they went up. They started on the eighth floor and went all the way up through the 11th floor. And it was like kind of an open cafe area. And two of these giant pillars of plants and we had like a big like cherry picker you know i'd park it down the hallway it was like kind of a they'd put it on the eighth floor because that's where all the uh air conditioning and stuff it's like the brains of the building go, that go through like the middle floor it was a 14-story building so i would pull this cherry picker down through the hall and pull it up there early in the mornings and these things were like 60 70 feet in the air and you'd go all the way up and you get vertigo because the thing starts rocking and stuff and people are starting to filter in and look at you do the work. It's like kind of part of the fun. But that stuff like that, but nothing crazy. No, no. What uh, what made you want to get back into golf um, from this job? Fried egg, baby. No, in a big in a, in a large sense, the fried egg at large, though, the, uh, the the golf community that I kind of walked back into or rediscovered. Um. I got healthy, number one. Like you don't, well, actually I can, there, there were times, I won't get too into this, but suffice to say I was living out of a backpack, like lower Manhattan essentially. And, and, and there were times I would like hit balls at Chelsea Piers or they have like a public green at Bryant Park. And at times when I was either like essentially homeless or couch surfing, like I would stop and play a little bit, but as I got healthy, like, and I got my body back and I got my sleep patterns back and I had a regular job and had a bank account and all that stuff. It was like, I could golf. Like I was living in Queens and everything, but we do have, I mean, I was only once I, once we got the car in Queens, you know, I could get to Forest Park in six minutes. We were really close to Forest Park golf course. Um, but I worked in Manhattan, so I would play, you know, I'd go practice at Chelsea Piers. Um, the We found some real treasures that are up and down the, the beaches there near the city. Some great par three courses like Reese Park and Nickerson Dunes. Um, Which you wrote Joan, about for us. Yep, exactly. And that was another, but and that's what I mean. It was like kind of that whole community that I rediscovered, putting language and thought because you guys had kind of a head start. Like I, I I'm older than a lot of you guys. I'm 45 now, but I was kind of checked out there for a little bit. And a lot of you guys in those later years, like right when I was kind of getting my shit back together, you guys were busy studying and busy researching and traveling and seeing all these golf courses and doing the historical connections and putting language to it. So by the time I had practiced up a little bit and was kind of like, hmm, you know, I'm getting a little tired of doing this in the city and 
you know, I have some relevant skills. When I started getting on the computer, you guys would be the first thing that would come up. I always knew about Golf Club Atlas. Now, Golf Club Atlas, I can remember coming across probably in 2005 or six is when I started reading that. And that might have been my first kind of entree into the real architecture stuff. But that's still a little traditional based. I mean, there's, I mean, it, it's all of our best resource, right? But like this new younger guys talking about it and kind of approaching it from a less stuffy way was just, uh, it was a, uh, it was, it gave me a lot of optimism because I, I didn't want, I wasn't the person who was going to step into like a conservative, like preppy kind of new pastime. I needed some sort of plausible denial in there. So like cool guys like you and not to like sound so cheesy about it, but just to like in plain language kind of gave me cover to get back in and like at least be enthusiastic and like at least knew, know that there were some people out there different. Mm-hmm. Where, what, uh, I, I gotta ask for advice for any city dweller, you know, you lived in Queens and were playing a lot of golf, um, a lot of affordable golf. What, what are the five courses you must see near the city? And there's good you're... courses too. And I'm going to give them kind of a strategy about it too. Cause you don't just want to show up or okay. whatever at these this courses. Is good. I, I, this is, I need this. The city courses. They're they're packed right now. They're going to be packed four hours from now. Like if it's sunny and plus 40 degrees, like you're going to run into golfers and probably quite a few. But your best bet is to either go very early. Um, I mean, if you're living in the city, don't listen to this. You just got to freaking gut it out. But five courses. Forest Park is awesome. Really cool set of greens. Um all of these courses were basically done. This is one of the greatest like untold stories in golf course architecture. What John Van Cleek did of Styles and Van Cleek by this time he was on his own. The New Deal projects like the WPA projects or whatever you want to call them that he did in New York City during those 18 months where he did he redid Van Cortland, he redid Split Rock, he built Casina, redid Forest Park, built Douglas Town, built Reese Park, all golf courses built, constructed, and like up in play, like in less than two years with all this labor. And any of those golf courses are a blast to visit, but go online first and do some research. Um, the New York City government has a really great time-lapse thing like the NYC then and now. If you Google that, it'll give you like a slider aerial where you can look at some twenties and thirties aerials of these golf courses and see how crazy they were, the stuff that he built. And a lot of it's still there in the ground, although it's been grassed over, grown over, but they're all really, really cool golden age golf courses. And he had a real flair around the greens. You know, they're generally smallish, but like, all, all of kind of the template styles are represented throughout his courses. There's a lot of mutations of them. Um, he just had a real fun style when he was doing these courses. And I think it was probably due to some of the speed he did it in. It's just some of, some of the architecture is almost kind of frivolous. It's, um, 
it's kind of fun. Like, yeah, I've heard Split Rock's really cool. Split Rock is great course. Yeah, both those courses there. Great day of golf if you want to do thirty six. Like I, I don't know which one's better. Split Rock. Um, there's Pelham and there's Split Rock, and I, I hope I'm not getting it wrong. Pelham or Split Rock is the more is the more uh, kind of wooded, rambunctious, and I think the other is the more. They're both really good. They, I think they were both golf courses like from the late 1800s on, and just kind of permutated, and that was the land that they used for the Van Cleet courses. But uh, a lot of that, uh, I'm trying to think of stuff that's maybe a little farther out. I didn't get to play golf on Long Island too much as far as um, I, I was fortunate enough getting back into golf. My first job back into golf from doing the horticulture work was at the Creek in Locust Valley um, under Adam and what, Wilkins. What year, what year was this about? Uh, it was the September after the grow-in of Gilhans's work. So this so like must 2017 have been, or so. exactly. I think it was the fall of 17 and it was the off season. Um, Adam went to school with Jason Mall, who was the then superintendent at Moraine. Moraine, and, yeah. Yeah. And Jason and I w- were close. So kind of on Jason's recommendation, um, Adam hired me as like third assistant horticulturalist because they were also looking for like a horticulturalist for that club. And it was November. I was living in Queens and he said, come on, try it out for a little bit, uh, see if it would be a fit. And I loved it. I spent uh, five or six weeks. It was nice. I could leave Queens in the morning and be at the creek in 45 minutes. But if I didn't leave the creek by about 2.30, 3 o'clock, like that drive home could go to two and a half, three hours pretty easily. So at that point I had like a, you know, 14 month, 15 month old daughter. Um, my wife's working from home. So I kind of respectfully declined to, you know, start the spring out with them, but it gave me a big boost. And that was kind of concurrent with you guys publishing my piece on Nickerson dunes and getting to know Garrett and talking to Garrett quite a bit through that process. And both of those things gave me a lot of wind in my sails. So after that, it was just kind of a matter of when we ended up moving out of the city to get some more space um, and put some projects together up here until I found this place. What were, what were you doing up there before you found this, uh, before you found Sullivan County? Uh, right at, well, I, I commuted back and forth from the, from here to the city for about nine months, still doing the horticulture job. Went back to the horticulture right after the creek. We ended up buying a house here. Um, but I commuted back and forth from Liberty to New York for about nine months. And at that point, um, there were a couple projects brewing up here. Uh, there was a casino course up here that was built in the 60s and was getting a Reese Jones makeover. So I ended up helping a little bit out there for him, just kind of part time. Did some work here in the clubhouse. And that was all before working at Ines, which is Rob Collins' place. Mm-hmm. So the whole time we were like shopping for houses up here, I had known about the project. 
it was going to happen. I'd kind of checked out the old golf course. It was going to be on. Um, by that time, I had been introduced like to Rob a little bit online and we had texted a little bit. Um, so just going back and forth with him, ended up having a friend who I also met online uh, from Knoxville. His name is Kyle. He ended up helping Rob and that crew during the construction. But I always had a kind of a pulse on that. And when it was all completed, I ended up working with Anthony, the superintendent on the grow-in at NS, and did that and worked there through their first season and into all through their first off season. And that was when the job here opened up. So I did get about a year and a half in at NS in between the city and here. So that was a really fun experience. A lot well, of yeah, learning. Well- what was the what was growing uh like and what what were the unique aspects of uh of growing in a golf course that you particularly take a lot with you from? I had never done a grow in. You know, I'd done random tea projects here and there, greens expansions, some bunker renovations and stuff, but never a whole grow in. Um so they they completed the course more or less late in the season. And they had kind of hydro seeded a cover crop. And by the time I got there, the next growing season, you know, there was a a winter involved. And they had started the serious hydro seeding of the grasses that were going to be the turf. And so I participated in kind of the end of the hydro seeding process. Um, That golf course was, in a sense, kind of built to perform in a way that was a little bit different than most like uh clay-based soil-based courses. It was never going to be sand capped or anything. You know, the greens were sand based, but uh Rob and Tad wanted that course to play very firm and fast. So they had that place rock hard before we hydro seeded it. And they got the irrigation in the ground and the process was just there were going to be two cuts. You have a fairway cut that's almost, you know, infinitely wide that bleeds into a native cut. And, you know, the the fairway cut was going to be, it was ryegrass and bluegrass, real tightly mown, and all the natives were fine fescue. And we just painted those things on. And really growing in a golf course is a struggle as things don't stay put even in soil. I know they say it's worse in sand, but you know, when you go that there were tropical storms involved, thunderstorms, you know, wipes out work that you took you hours to do, you know, just on repeat, you know, there were spots of that course that we had to rebuild, not large spots and through no, no one's fault. It's just a natural process, especially on a course as voluptuous as that. But, you know, just sections that you have to just keep hammering on and the grass just gets a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer till you finally have a surface. And then you finally see it start to knit and then you're finally taking the mower down. And it's really cool. And it's a real struggle. It's just seed and sand and dirt and water. And the whole time you're working out of a shed because they're building your new maintenance barn and then you're moving into that and you're learning how to set up a maintenance barn and we didn't have a mechanic. So Anthony was learning, you know, the hard way how to do it on his own and then teaching me how to do it just so we could 
keep the mowers out and stuff, you know, assembled a little crew, but eventually got it to where it needed to be. Really, really fun process, especially on a course that's so cool and fun to look at like every day. So the the Sullivan County job comes up and and you jump at that. What was it about uh, Sullivan County that uh, attracted you uh, to the job? And and what I know this is a it's a very special place for you. What what makes it so such a special place to you? Number one, it's very close. The house we ended up buying is a half a mile that way. So I'm two minutes from work. I can walk here in seven or eight minutes. Um, I got here and it was going to be my local and I played it and it was very early and it was wet. And I was like, it's cool. You know, a lot of good land movement and stuff, but I, it, it didn't sink in until a little bit later in the spring when it dried out a little bit and they got it mowed out and I could kind of see what the idea of the course was. Um, I always kind of wanted to take care of my own place, but I never really had the guts. <laughs> like it was always going to have to be a perfect situation. Like you're, you're talking to me like I'm a superintendent and I am, and I, I, I appreciate, you know, the skills that I have and everything, but there are thousands of superintendents right now doing the job at a higher level than me at their own place. And, you know, they're managing people, they're managing members and everything. And this was the perfect situation because it was just the two owners. And they asked me when Tony and Mary decided to stay in Florida, if I could just come and mow it to keep it from going to seed, you know, because they didn't think that I would want to kind of give it a go or they didn't want to like put that on me right off the bat. But I was kind of like instantly, like if you give me Chris, which was Tony and Mary's helper, and now my guy, um, let's just keep it open. If you don't mind doing one more season, you've lost this much money, you know, and maybe we can get some interested people. And they trusted me enough to do it, you know, but it was a situation where I, I knew I could meet the expectations here. I wasn't stepping into a place with very high expectations. And I, I even knew that I had the skills that I could probably, you know, raise it a little bit with my experience. And I, but I knew that I wasn't going to have to have a lot of the stuff a regular superintendent, for lack of a better term, would have to. I don't have Greens Committee meetings. Um, you know, Tom Coyne is on board now, but since he's been on board, he hasn't given me 30 seconds of grief. We're both on the same page. We just want it to look better out there, and we spend as much time as we can doing that. Um, but it's also a really cool golf course. It was built by two guys who knew exactly what they were doing and had seen about everything. Um, they were kind of builders for the first wave of golden age builders. Um, Lynn Rayner, not no relation to Seth no Rayner. He was the original head pro and superintendent at Leatherstocking Golf Course in Cooperstown, which is a Devereaux Emmett. And by all like accounts, essentially built that course for, you know, with and for Emmett, you know, he was there, the man on the ground for the development of that course. Um, and the other architect of, they worked together, Lynn Rayner and then Maurice McCarthy, who did like the original layouts at Hershey, um, is on record, um, 
in some records, if doing like courses like Knickerbocker, he pops up a lot of places as kind of like perhaps a builder, um, some credits on his own. But these weren't well-known guys, but they were definitely around kind of that first wave. Lynn Rayner built five greens under Walter Travis at nearby Stanford Golf Club. So these, these were guys who built our course who definitely were in the loop back then in kind of that mm -hmm. first golden age crop, you know, the Emmett, um, Travis, you know, before the Rosses and before the Tillies, kind of that. So we have a really cool golf course. It's just, it's pretty wild land, a lot of elevation change. Um, they just kind of built tees and greens and worked with the land. Um, we have 12, 13 bunkers, depending on how you want to count out there. It's about Depending on what you count as a bunker. <laughs> we're, we're trying to scratch a few more out that we know that, that we two, two's the last one. It looks, it's, it's, it's the coolest bunker on the course. Like it's a very dramatic greenside bunker, very deep. And it's right there. It's just weeded out. It's just like the last one on the list. So, yeah. um, but it's cool. It's, you know, it's just smidge over 3000 yards, unirrigated. It's fun, really fun golf. Good yeah. ground game, good ground game course. Obviously, the maintenance uh, expectation you took over was like, let's just not let this go to seed. Um, and in your time, you've elevated it. What's what would you say has been the toughest challenge of of getting this golf course kind of back to more more making it more and more playable? A few challenges. There's a term they use: a benevolent neglect. And this, if it was ever true. It's true here because um, they never tried to do anything too bad. When I, from an agronomic standpoint, um, the greens had always been taken very good care of, but over the last decade, they had stopped doing any top dressing or aerification. So say when I cut a new cup and I pull that plug out, you know, I've got a pretty nice inch, inch or two in some areas of thatch organic matter that's been built up. So that's one of the bigger issues we've been tackling and will continue to tackle um, because that's, they play better than they should for that much thatch. Um, if you keep them dry, but it, it's not good. We, you know, we want to get some of that stuff out there and even them out a little bit. The grass lines have all been, had all been lost. Um, there's a couple fairways here that I tripled in like square footage because they had just gotten so narrow, little tiny approaches going up to the greens and flaring out. So I worked on bringing everything out. It's a neat stand of grass. It's an old mix, but there's really no difference um, in the stand from the fairway to the rough or anything. So I had kind of, and really at the start of each season, you kind of have free reign to do grass lines and it takes to a fairway cut really well if you can get on it in time. But that's kind of how I expanded the fairways and they look great now. Um, but getting those, especially the approaches out wide so the ball can come into these greens from different angles because that had all been lost is just bottlenecks. Um, and then just we took down like we have a lot of tree work still to do. Um, at the start of this year, we took down 25, 30 trees, especially on our third hole, which had become kind of broken just because of the tree encroachment. 
it's on a hill that you need to be able to play it up so far and you weren't able to do that. Um, but our corridors are still nice and wide. We don't have any like super egregious trees. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. too for it's just too forested through. We have really nice vistas that we'd like to get back. Um, so j- the general stuff, trees, grass lines. Um, we have drainage that we need to work on. Um, I don't know if they offered to put in a brand new irrigation system for fairways and everything, I don't think I'd do it. I think we'll stay with just greens only. Even if we do get a more modern system. Hey, if it's good, if it's good enough for Fisher's Island, it's good enough for you. It's definitely good. And we're, we're in such a sweet little spot. I mean, we're, we're just waiting for the most springs. We're just waiting for them to dry out, you know? And it's like June finally comes and they're good. And it's, you're just, you hope it stays dry. You know, it's kind of, you get a thunderstorm and you know, the golf's going to suck for a day, day and a half, and then they're going to get back to dry. So it's nice. You just never, last year we went like 22 days in some heat without any rain and they got pretty nasty looking, you know, but cool looking, you know, but you don't get too much of that anymore. Like it's fun. Like where, where can you go? in that middle class, say that 40 to $90 round in America, where you're going to get like burned out on irrigated fairways, like public access. There's just not, there's a few Northeast, especially if you're going to find them, you'll probably find them up here, but there's no, there's no like resort for a day doing that. Like there's a course in door County, Wisconsin that just got sold to the Packers owner or a Packers, okay. somebody that works for the Packers for like $1 million. And I'd always had my eye on that golf course because it nice was um, by the bunk, the bunker style was, and it was built in the late twenties and the bunker style was eerily like I have an old aerial of it. So similar to Langford Moreau. And I had done some research and it was built by Joe Roseman, the guy that uh, invented the lawnmower. Oh, I didn't, I don't even know about Joe Roseman and here I am. But um, he and he had I think he had worked either for Harry Speed or Langford Moreau, one of those two guys that built some really wild, crazy stuff in the Midwest. But that golf course just sold for a million bucks in Door County. I, I, and it's unirrigated. Um, fairway, just green. I don't think I don't think the guy has intention. I think he just didn't want it to become houses. Good. Golf Best kind of owner doesn't yep. doesn't want doesn't want to doesn't want to uh, you know doesn't have intentions I think of changing the golf course just didn't want houses near his vacation house I think I can understand that like I feel like here I'm getting my cake and eating it too because it's kind of gone from uh, we're gonna put it up for sale to you know and they were gonna do all these condos and their big hotel. And that's off the board now. And it went from very perilous to now I've got someone who's at least very in line with uh, keeping the operation lean and keeping it kind of golf centric. So what's, what's been the, the, since you've been there, what's gone, can you just explain maybe, you know, a cliff notes of the metamorphosis of, of the property, of the property, the ownership situation and what's going on now? So, this year when we opened, we had a lease signed with Tom Coyne. Um, just kind of a, 
a long process for me, um, reaching out to people primarily online, getting people to visit the course, some, um, some architects, some writers and stuff, just to kind of make sure I'm not crazy here. You know, is this worth pursuing or not? Or am I just going to annoy people? Um, but one thing led to another. And um, so what was the situation that led to this? So last year closes, you know, we, we pulled it off in a sense where we kept the doors open. Um, but by the end of the golf season last year, the owners gave me an ultimatum like May 1st. If you can bring somebody in who's interested in the golf course, you have the uh, I was almost like the broker. But on May 1st, we're going to put it on open market. So I kind of put things into overdrive. I had actually seen a post on Twitter where Tom Coyne was now working with the architect Colton Craig um, and kind of forming a, a, a venture, you know, kind of a, starting the, the starts of a company. And I, was, I had never considered reaching out to Tom Coyne, but I had heard a lot about Colton Craig through the podcast and some of his projects. So I just blindly reached out to coin on that post. I DM'd him on Twitter and um, sent him an album of pictures of the course explaining, listen, we got like, I got like five months to try to turn this thing around or it's going to get sold. Um, here's the cast of characters. Here's me. Here's Chris, blah, blah, blah. And we started a dialogue. One thing leads to another. He gets to see the property. He's into it. Hunky dory. He meets the owners. They're like, take it from us. You can run it for a season. Um, so, th so that's what we're doing. You know, it's a simple property. I'm sitting in the clubhouse here. We have a cart barn and we have a maintenance barn. And those are the only structures on the whole property. Um, we've did a little bit of tree work. Um, we got new equipment from Toro. So... Instantly this year, like the quality of cut and the mowing was better. Last year, my maintenance to mowing time was like one to one, just like turning wrenches, keeping the old ones, like literally. And this year, it's just much better. So the course looks better. Greens are putting great. Um, and then, you know, someone like Tom Coyne moves the needle so much with his connection. So, you know, this year, silly stuff that every golf course has. But, you know, we, we have golf shirts with our logo on it. You know, he's friends with Lee Wybranski, who does the great U.S. Open art, and he calls him and, and we get Lee Wybranski to do our logo, you know, with the propeller and the golf club. Because in 1931, we had a transatlantic flight take off from our eighth fairway, and it's kind of a big part of the club lore. Um, you know, we got Aquatrolls, who like supplies fertilizers and wedding agents. Um who he had a relationship with and they're kind of sponsoring me from the standpoint of helping me with our soil health and the right kind of nutrition out there. And they approach it very much from an environmental point of view, like I do. So I don't have to be too scared of like what I'm putting down or spending money on things. I don't want to spend money on anyway. Um, two, three weeks ago, and these names will mean something to the superintendents listening to us now. But I had uh, Scott Ramsey, um, who yeah, people might Yale, know best. From Yale. Yeah, from Yale, yeah. Um, then I had uh, Tom Valentine, who is of the 
Marion superintendent lineage. His dad and his grandfather were superintendent at Marion for 60, 70 years together. Um, and then the guys from Aqua Trolls, you know, Augie Young. Um, we got Chris Pogey from Toro, Grassland Toro. All these guys are like behind me now. Like if I have a problem with a mower or if I'm running out of a fungicide and bad weather's coming, it's like that, which we had none of those resources earlier. So the course, there's just obvious benefits. It's just been brought up to kind of more of a level that you would expect when you come in and pay 30 or $40 for a round of golf. Um, and there's just kind of a buzz. It's fun. Um, people are coming from, a lot of people are coming from the city. A lot of people are coming from Philadelphia. A lot of people are coming from Boston. We're two hours from New York, three hours from Philly, four hours from Boston, essentially. But they're making the trip. They're staying in little hotels here. The Catskills, this little part of the Catskills is like, it's like heaven. Like the hottest temperature we've had all year, we've hit 87 twice. Like I'm sitting here today, the high temperature was 68 degrees. We got some of the best like fly fishing and hiking and outdoor stuff literally in the world. This is, this is to fly fishing what like Long Island is to American golf. Like this is the hot spot. Like, um, so we, we, we just hope to capitalize on it with courses like NS, um, and hopefully the course, the new Reese Jones course. Um, and there's a couple other projects that I don't want to talk about too much, but there's some good golf to have up here and there's a little golf trail. So I would definitely like tell people who are within a hollering distance to spend a couple days and check out all the courses here. It's really nice part of the country. The, the monster race. John. Yeah. I didn't know how much you know about the, the, the <laughs> what a name for Reese Jones course. Joe Lee, who did the first iteration of the monster and also did the Grossinger course, which is right across town here yeah. at Liberty. He he's an interesting character. And Grossinger's he, he grafted. Worked for, uh, he worked for Dick Wilson. Yes, yeah, but he's apparently a little bit more agreeable than Dick Wilson, like <laughs> from the client's point of view. But no, the monster was like the longest course at the time. I think it was like seventy nine fifty, like when it opened in sixty eight or something like that, like. And it had water everywhere. Like it was like Island fairways. It was like that Ryder cup course from a few years back. Like, yeah, like, off national. like a sixties Northeast version of that. Reese Jones toned it down. It's actually a really cool golf course. Um, I need to see the grass now. They, they built 12 of those holes like three years ago and then COVID just killed it. And then they came back and finished the last six holes last fall. And they've got those almost in condition and they're about to open up. Like, I think maybe this, they might be yeah, open they, right they, now. They, they might, it might be today. Honestly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It might be August 1st. Um, but it's cool. They've got like a fine fescue, fine fescue bluegrass mix fairways. And actually I think they've planted that bent grass greens and then all the roughs and fairways are fine fescue bluegrass mix. So that could be an interesting surface out there, a little different. That, like. The Gray Walls has that, actually, um, surface. And it's really cool is where the, where there's heavy cart traffic, the the bluegrass kind of takes over. And where there isn't heavy cart traffic, like on hills or anything, 
it's all fescue, right? So nice. like if you think about it that way, that's how it kind of interacts. And the thing they do so well is they keep it all like they keep the carts really off the green. So in the 20 to 30 yard approach area, it's all fescue coming into the green. Very right? good. Yeah, so especially that like area. A really keep great ball, clean. playing playing surface. So they uh, built the Catskills. Yeah, the Catskills hopefully making a little resurgence and hope there's no news to report, but I mean, hopefully Grossingers can turn the corner too, because it's been closed now for nine or 10 years. It was another uh, Joe finger design, Joe finger, not Joe Lee, Joe finger is Joe the finger. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, but he grafted 18 holes on to a Tillinghast 18. And there's still like 12 and a half original Tillinghast holes in the ground over there. And then it's, it was a 27 hole facility. It's been closed for nine or 10 years. They still mow the fairways and the greens. Um, but all the resort buildings and everything have been wiped out, but it's just sitting there. They still have a crew like mowing it. You could go sell tea times there right now, but locked up. Yeah. Well, Hey, I really appreciate the time, Sean. And uh, everybody can find you on social media. You're on Twitter. You're or X, as they call it now. X uh, now. So weird. Yeah, so bad. Complete this. It's just like, it seems jarring because I still see the blue everywhere, but it it's X on well, my home screen. I'll get think used about, to it. We yeah. were, we were working on the bottom of our newsletter and putting like Instagram, Facebook, and then we had Twitter on there and we switched it to X. Did you get the fresh like, logo on there? But, but it's the like, little, wait, the little it, it looks like, it looks like an error. Right. Oh, like they get this. Uh. <laughs> like it doesn't look like it's a, you know, like it, it's, it, it's, I don't know. I'm not a branding expert, but I, I'm curious what one would think about that. So you can find, people me there, can find yep. you there. Um, yep. And Instagram too. Or Instagram at, too. Yeah. The best way to find you would be just going to Sullivan County, go and play right in here. Nice, I'm imagine here the most falls, days. The fall up there's got to be idyllic with that coming around the corner. Best golf is in September, early October, definitely. Until yeah. until it gets cold enough to where the rain doesn't dry out, which is normally sometime late October, mid November, and then you just do something else. Well, thank you for coming on and, and telling your story. It's uh, I think it's it's a it's a fascinating uh, one, and obviously one where uh, you know golf has come in and out of your life, and uh, and and it seems like uh, the best parts of it have been with golf in it. Thank you, Andy. It's um, in, in no small part, I owe it to a lot of what you and your team are doing. Um, tell Garrett I said hello, but. You guys, especially with that article and all the all the stuff you guys do, you, like I said before, you put a lot of wind in my sails. Um, got me very excited about golf again, and here I am. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Sean. We'll talk soon. All right. Talk to you. All right. Thank you again to uh, Sean Smith for the time. Uh, be sure to follow him on Twitter. It's at Gorsnod. Um, and uh, before we get to Tyler Ray, let's take another break to talk about Toro. Americans like our utility vehicles the way we like our U.S. Open courses, rugged. A winner needs to do it all in tough conditions. And Toro's new Workman UTX line is here to get the job done, any job. 
snow and ice removal, tree maintenance, transporting equipment or materials, whatever you need, this commercial-grade, smooth-riding, four-wheel drive monster has your back. The Workman UTX's proprietary governing system unpairs ground speed and RPM so the operator can limit the machine's speed without gutting the power. Higher RPMs when more oomph is required, less RPMs, and less fuel consumption when it isn't. That kind of all-around performance is what champions are made of. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Now on to Tyler Ray. Tyler, it's been a little while, and uh, you know, since we last talked, you're uh, you're quite quite a busy man. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, we're riding the golf wave, so it's all good. Yeah, I wanted to talk uh, about um, kind of your journey. Um, the last time we talked, which was it had to be about six years ago, um, you were doing a little bit of solo work, but mostly as a as an associate um, working for Ron Prichard. Now you are uh, full blown on your own, and I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about the differences of of going from associate to solo architect. Yeah, um, gosh, that's a great, great first first start question there. Um, you know, when you're when you're working for somebody else, or when you're shaping and coming up in this industry, you don't get all the calls. Um, you're you know living on the road a lot job the job you know i was living at cedar rapids during that restoration living at beverly you know living um and shaping full time pretty much visiting some clubs here and there but at the end of the night you go to the hotel or the airbnb and you have five emails three emails um your phone's not really ringing during the day cuz ron pritchard was handling that uh, and he was getting the calls and I was, I was, uh, just the guy kind of out in the road, uh, doing a lot of our work, making a lot of site visits and we tag teamed it really well. But now it's the, the change is the 20 emails a day, the 10 calls, the, the invoices, you know, paying five full-time employees. It's, uh, it's, you're really running a business. You're really a business man. Um, it's real, it's real. And so to me, like the other night I was at Wakanda the last couple of days, building greens and all the bunkers, teas and stuff there in Des Moines. And I mean, going to bed at like 1230, you know, and then you get up at 430 and try to sneak a workout in, in the morning just to stay healthy. And, uh, so it's real. It is real. Yeah, I can I can sympathize and relate, you know, when you when when you travel, I think like that's one of the times where your tank gets the most empty just because of the hours. And if you're you know, I, I your your job is kind of in, in a way a little bit similar to mine. When I travel, I'm out on site at courses all day long and and at very early hours in the morning and late at night because of photography. And, you know, you get home and it's like, oh, I still have to do all this other stuff. And uh, it's just, you know, you just kind of you get home from a trip. And, you know, a lot of people say this with you've got young kids. I've got a young kid. It, a lot of people are like, well, at least you got some sleep while you were away. It's like, well, I got less sleep than if I'd be home. <laughs> so exactly. Um, 
with with the boom in golf, uh, as you as you alluded to, you're riding the wave in golf. Um, one of the challenges I think out there has been, you know, you went from golf architecture and golf construction went from this industry that was relatively, you know, predictable year over year. There wasn't a ton of projects that were going on, and now we have this huge boom. How's it been with finding good staff? And then also, you know, contractors and different things when there's, you know, just in general, a, a little bit of a labor shortage out there. What's what's that been like? Well, everybody chases, you know, the big money, unfortunately, when it's really hot, you know, and, and not architects per se, but but I mean, down to laborers, um, shapers, you know, everybody knows there's if they're good, they're going to request a little bit more money. And so we're having to pay out, uh, you know, higher fees for really good guys and, and uh, guys we've worked for in the past. And, and I'm okay with that, you know, because these projects, if they're going, you know, the clients understand that. So it's okay. But um, it's hard to secure really good guys. Um, all the best are really busy, you know, and that's like the best green finishers, the best bunker guys, the best dozer operators, um, you know, they're just all really busy and, uh, and they're happy. And so when you're trying to pick and choose for certain projects, um, it's hard to retain really good help, you know, really good people. And so for us, uh, every year we've, we've just like, you know, our staff, I mean, we're paying them more and more and more. And, um, I'm starting to raise my fees, to clubs, you know, and, and they're kind of like, oh, okay, I get it. You know, and I'm like, well, we're just paying so much for our, our great guys to retain, you know, top-notch talent. And, um, but no, it's hard. It's really hard, Andy. And, um, um, but, you know, everything's cyclical. So who, who knows how long this wave is going to last. Um, but it is good because, you know, inflation every year, 3 4%. Um, it's good to see people making a little more money in our industry, too. Uh, it's such a hard industry, the road life. There's not a, it's not a long life. I mean, you see some guys do 10, 12 years on the road and they're like, all right, I can't have a family. I can't have a life. I can't have a wife. I can't have kids. I'm never home. And so it's good. Guys are making a little more money because then they can spend a little more time at home. So I I'm seeing a lot of guys work like eight months straight, take four off, you know, or, or, or work four straight, then take a couple or, you know, work three month, three weeks straight, take a week, things like that. But it, it, you have to be creative. Are you a goals person? Uh, goals, as in G O A L S. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have I have five year goals. So I had 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, and I've hit. I've hit them. You know, I've hit them. There's there's two major goals I have before forty. And it's getting tight here. <laughs> I'll be 40 pretty soon. And um, there's two more that I need to hit. And we're really close. So we're hopeful. But um, if you if you I, don't mind sharing them, uh, what have what have been one or two that you've achieved? And uh, what are what are one or two that you're looking to uh, get to that you haven't yet? Yeah, yeah. I think I mean, when I'm on an airplane at night or in morning, when I'm coming, going to clients going to clubs coming home i'm on my phone and i'm always looking at my prioritization list of what i have to do but there's always there's goals in there and i'm always looking at them and changing them and not changing them but modifying them and and uh 
you know, one was probably when I was 25 was I wanted to work for two top five architects um, at some point. And I felt like, you know, with Corin Crenshaw, working a little bit with Doak, Keith Foster, Ron Pritchard, you know, um, I tried to work with Gil. We almost had a, a deal for Doral back in the day. So I almost had something going with him, but I feel like I achieved that goal, you know, working with two top five guys or teams. Um, and then another one was um, have like five top 100 clubs by 40. That's the one I'm working on a little bit. Uh, we're lucky to sign Brookside Canton recently in Ohio, where you're going to have it's your great spot. I think, yeah, your shootout here on the 28th of August. And uh, so, you know, that one's in the golf magazine, top 100 and, you know, Beverly's pretty darn high up there, mountain Lake. Um, so I think we're, we're on the cusp. I think I have like four in the top 100 um, and we're hopeful maybe Wakanda sneaks in there here soon or, or something yeah, you else. Got, I mean, you, you got ones that are in process that could go up, you know, like, right, it, I right. guess that goal, that goal depends on when you judge it. Right. 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 Exactly. Look out mountain. Yeah. I mean, shoot. Yeah. I'm more proud of that than almost anything in my whole career. I mean, it's just shockingly bold. And so we're hopeful that gets really great reviews. It's getting great reviews now. And, and, um, but we're hopeful when, golf digest and magazine and everybody comes out to really see it this fall we're hopeful next year it gets the love i can't wait for you to see it and john cavalier i was talking to him the other day with Lynx gems and uh, he was heading down to see it soon but yeah so that that's another one and then i think um you know what else um gosh you know some are personal stuff some are you know relationship stuff stuff like that yeah. I mean, I guess business, you know, we're trying to hit different numbers and stuff like that, you know, with those top 100 things. And, and I guess, um, you know, I always categorize every year by the amount of work we do by dollars. So like last year we did 33 million worth of projects and the year before we did like 24 million and the year before we did like 18 million. So we're trending. And so, you know, a goal was me for me was to do 50 million in, in a year. And I, in 2025, we have that lined up. We have like 55 million lined up. So that's a goal. Um, it sounds like an odd goal, but, but I just know that like, well, that's, that's, a, that's a relevant business goal. You know, everybody's trying to get revenue, like, growth, you know, right? gross revenue, you know, <laughs> everybody's always looking at P and R and gross revenue. And so for us, it's like, you know, when I, I think about what Gil's doing or Andrew Green or Tom Doak, I'm like, you know, these guys might be doing 80, you know, or 70 or a hundred million in projects a year. Um, and with our new build in Charleston coming up, I mean, that's going to put us up, up in the echelon up there. But, but I just think of like, people always say, Oh, how busy, Oh, you know, how busy architects are, how busy. So I think of the top five of how busy they are. And it's a direct correlation to how much project totals are. So. What, when you think about your business, what, what is the right amount of business? Is there a cap to it or are you, a, do, are your goals to get it to where you can take on more than, you know, say a, a Tom Doak or a Bill Corrin Crenshaw are taking on now? Like what, what do you see as the right balance of, of projects versus, you know, time on site? Yeah, no, that is the fine line of life there. Uh, <laughs> you know, so for me, I'm not, I'm not really 
money driven in this. I mean, I love it so much that I, I don't think about money like ever. You know, I love I love getting up. I get out of bed every morning almost before the alarm because I love I love seeing different golf courses every day and being on different golf courses. I mean, it's like my favorite thing, you know, other than my wife and kids and family. You know, I love I love it so much. I can't wait to go like you go photo. I bring my drone on the road. I have it sitting in front of me charging because I was at Mount Lake this week in Wakanda and Ansley Club in in uh, Atlanta. And it's like, I can't wait to get up there and beat everybody out there and take the shots when the sun's coming up like you do. And then I'm the last one out there, um, you know, but um, I love spending time um, playing my own golf course, you know, Bitterman Golf Club in Wilmington, Delaware. And I love seeing my friends and there's just more to life than work. And I worked from like 18 to probably 33. I lived on the road in different localities. So I lived in Oregon. I lived in Charleston. I lived in Dallas. I lived in Chicago, Boston, London. I mean, I've, I've lived in so many places that I almost became just this uh, gypsy. <laughs> my friends, <laughs> some of my buddies would call me just like this gypsy. and so. I value friendships a lot now in this part of my life because I just didn't for so many years. Everything was just work and I neglected everything. I neglect, I didn't have girlfriends. I didn't have anything. I was just solely focused on building golf and trying to build my career and making relationships and visiting and seeing everything I could. And now I'm like taking a step back. I want to enjoy watching my kids grow. Um, so I turned down 27. I was adding it up. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, it was like between 27 and 31 clubs last year that we turned down, which is cool. Okay. That's great. And I'm not, I'm not saying that because I'm, you know, being, I'm bragging about it. It's, it's answering your question of how much, how much work is enough. I just looked in the mirror and said, well, if I keep taking all this work or if I keep going after, cause they were just calls that said, Hey, we'd like you to interview. It's not like, you know, I, um, had the job or something like that. But these are just interviews and, um, you know, X, Y, and Z club in, you know, um, somewhere in Kentucky or somewhere in Boston or Florida. And, um, but I had to say no and politely decline because it's like, you know, we want to work with, um, you know, a smaller nest egg. We want to have a, a small boutique firm. We want to be hands-on, but we also want to go home on Fridays, like I'm in my office, it's a Friday and it's delightful and there's dust gathering because I haven't been here enough, but, but I flew home yesterday from Wakanda and it's like, I'm going to be home Friday, Saturday and Sunday. This is great. I can play golf tomorrow morning. I can hang out with my family, go to the pool. And so that's to me what life is like and what life's about. It's more than golf and it's more than trying to get all these clubs. I don't want to be doke. And have all that work. And uh, I mean, he travels so much. I talked to him last week. I was in Traverse City last week. And, um, you know, we couldn't link up for lunch because he was, I think, gone for like six straight days. And, you know, so um, those guys are awesome. And Gil's killing it. These guys are off the charts busy. But um, I just want to take the right amount and the select ones that I really want to work with. The special properties like Brookside, like Wakanda, like Beverly, like Mountain Lake. Rayburn, Detroit Golf, you know, and then some of these new builds that we're doing finally, um, like in Charleston, you know, just special places that we're really going to enjoy going to. 
because I care a lot about where we like where we work, and because uh, we immerse ourselves in the the scenery. You know, like Jim Ryan uh, Jr., our our design associate. You know, we were out in Des Moines the other night, and we're trying different restaurants and walking around and exploring the city. And it's like, wow, Des Moines is really cool. You know, I yeah. never would have experienced Des Moines. It makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah, we never would have experienced it, you know, and uh, so we're happy we're there and we're immersing ourselves with the membership and the locality. And I know so much more about Des Moines than I ever knew. And it's cool. So I, I think you hit on a lot of things there. And I think one of the hard things, the hardest things to balance when you get into a job, as you alluded to, that you love that like there's really the only thing that you love more than going and seeing new golf courses, being on a golf course is, is family. Right. And the hard thing about it is, is that like you it can, it can engross your life. It can take over your life because you don't feel like you're working. You know, you're doing something that you love and you don't feel like you're working, but like sometimes you just have to take a step back and be like, wait a second. I still need a little bit of balance because you know, all of the other life things help you relate in in all the other situations, right? And if you if you get too down into the rabbit hole, you don't have any relation with society, right? That's the way I feel sometimes. Hundred percent, yeah. And relationships, friends, family—you know, your parents—and I love hanging out with my parents and going to play golf with my dad and seeing my sister and her husband and kids. And I, oh, I really look forward to that. So to talk a little bit about uh, golf architecture here, um, a question I had for you is you've obviously grown over your career. Um, You've been you've built greens for, you know, I don't know exactly how many years, but I'm curious about um, experience in green building and. When you look at the, the your early greens compared to the greens you're building now, do you notice any differences? You know, I think like we look at the golden age architects and everybody always likes to talk about how they evolved. How are you evolving? Wow. You know, I think about this. We talk about this a lot, too, because we just built. I was just building a green yesterday, the 17th at Wakanda, and then I built the second at Wakanda on Tuesday and Wednesday. So I mean, we're building, you know, we built 49 greens last year. And, um, and so, and we're going to do a lot this year. I don't know the number, but, um, I think when I was young, I, I, you know, walking all these courses, you'd always think about the pine valleys and, and like, what are the greatest sets of greens in the world? You know, you're thinking about St. Andrews and Augusta and, um, they were always, you know, like Chicago golf has a phenomenal set of greens, uh, putting surfaces, you know, and, and, um, and so traveling around, you know, Royal Melbourne stuff like that, you're always thinking about the best putting surfaces. But the problem is then when you get your chance to build greens, you're usually building them too crazy, a little too wild because you're thinking of the best ones you've ever seen. And I sketch, so I have like a ton of sketches of greens and I'll sketch the high points and the lows and where water is going and then the shape. So it's really easy when I can pull up my phone or, or iPad and I can pull up, a, you know, a green at Royal Melbourne or, or uh, you know, from like, um, say, uh, Moorfontaine or something like that or, or Doorknock. 
and I'll pull it up and I'll kind of look at the highs and lows and kind of the composition of the green. Um, but to me, what I've gotten better at, I think when I was younger, you're, you're trying to stuff too many things in, in one green and you're trying to shoot for the stars. Um, and when I was younger, we built, um, I think people were like, Ooh, these greens are just a little much. They're cool. When I go back and see stuff from 2012, 2010, you know, 15 years ago, I'm okay with them because the concepts were, I've tried really hard. They're tied in really well. They make sense. There's a bunch of flags, but it's like some of the little details are just off and maybe there's too much going on in them. So I have gotten a lot more refined and softer and like elegant and maybe maybe easier, you know, cause I worry about all the different handicappers, you know, all the different levels, skilled levels playing. And I realized that golfers are not that good. And so like Northmore, um, we, we, we did Northmore last year and it just opened uh, a couple you know, weeks ago. And I was really proud of the most subtle greens there. Like there's one that's falling away. That's really a head scratcher that you really can't tell, but it's falling away. And then there's another one that has like the most gentle spine in it, but you'll have a putt. And on the left side of the green, it just wanders a little left. And on the right side of the green, it just wanders a little right. So I've almost found like the most confounding fun greens are the ones you, you just don't immediately walk up to and go, Oh, look at the spine there. Look at that. Look at that. So I've been really into subtle stuff, but trying to mix and match. So like Northmore, I tried to have you know, we try to, I, I always say six, six, six. So like six, pretty darn interesting, fun greens, but they have to relate to the length of the hole. So shorter holes, par three, this or that reachable par five. If it's a long par four, I want it to be very subtle, you know, cause guys are hitting in guys and gals are hitting in long irons or woods. Uh, so it's all length driven from the hole kind of determines the funness, funness meter that we put in there. But I'm really cognizant now you know 15 years later of shaping greens of like less is more let's be a little more subtle everybody's maintaining them so quick these days you know at 11 12 13 on the stem that you put a little bump in there and it's it's enough um and then you know working with some really good guys and watching great green builders i was always a fan of like one movement in a green how it affects every pot on the green like there was a green at mountain lake uh that rainer you know obviously uh, i think it's uh, like number 14 and it had this gentle spine in it and they always said to me like hey whatever you do just don't screw up 14 green <laughs> you know and it was their favorite greens the whole all the members favorite green and it has that gentle spine but it affects every single putt on the green and so i'm a big fan sometimes of one movement affecting everything i think that's really cool um but yeah, and then the last thing off, I don't want to talk too long. Some of these answers, I know I can get long-winded because uh, we love talking well, about this, this stuff. This is good. This is the good stuff. Yeah. I just have so much detail. I appreciate yeah. this. Um, so like at Wakanda yesterday, okay, I'm, you know, there's there's like five really good Langford greens out there that I'm not going to touch. Like we've pulled them out of the job a little bit. We're going to expand them. We're expanding every green, rebuilding a bunch. Uh, but there are some complete duds, like straight up dead flat 1%. You know, something happened. A bunch were rebuilt in the 70s and 80s. 
but there are about five or six world-class Lawsonia Culver level greens. So I'm looking at those and I'm looking at like kind of what we're building the whole time. I'm thinking while I'm building greens is Tyler, don't get too crazy. We want to blend. I want, I want you to play one to 18 at Wakanda and not be able to pick a Tyler Ray green out. I want them to blend in. So here's the only problem though. This is a 1921 early Lankford before Monroe, uh, Moreau kind of before they were really cooking. Um, he met Moreau in like 1919, 1920, uh, when he was, when, uh, Theodore Moreau was working for the American park builders. And so this was an early Lankford. He really didn't start really knocking it out of the ballpark to like 25. So Wakanda has like the best land in America for a golf course. I mean, it's absolutely, I'm so in love with it. It's so crazy and bold and the holes are off the charts, but the Langford architecture wasn't like his peak yet, you know, his like high point. So it wasn't the Lawsonia, you know, like 1929, 30, the Culver, uh, really great stuff that we see. Kankakee Elks, those three, I think are the top three in his repertoire. So I'm, I don't want to pull greens from those clubs and then have like 18 off the charts, like mind blowing Langford greens. Cause I don't think it would fit with what he built in 21 and what's there. So see how like it, it gets so, it gets so hard to like make judgment calls on some of this stuff. So I'm sitting on like the second green yesterday. I'm like, ah, oh, this is a little over the top. I got to tone this down a little. It's got to blend in with the landscape. It's got to, it's got to make sense for this course. Um, so I was being a little more muted. Would you say that the more difficult restoration projects you know this is a restoration historical renovation whatever you want to call it um are the ones where you kind of have a a mixture of stuff that's left stuff that has been changed little documentation versus the ones where you have everything and it's is that the most challenging restoration? what's the most challenging restoration historical renovations uh scenario yeah, hundred uh, percent. Like, there's A, B, C, kind of that I call it. So A is like going into White Bear, and it's like, ah, we just want to touch the bunkers. That is easy peasy. I don't have to do any greens. I'll do light green expansions, maybe fairway stuff, rebunker it, look at old aerials. But when you get into greens work, I mean, you just don't want outliers. You don't want Tyler Ray greens. I go to so many courses where you see three or four greens that were blown up in the eighties or nineties and they don't fit at all. It's like, yeah. what were the architects looking at? <laughs> you know, it's like you got three moonscape or four Speak, moonscape. Speaking greens. of white bear, the 18th green at white bears. Right. There you go. Sorry. Yeah. Like the a, one the perfect example. To you. Right. You come over your the one hill there. and you're like, Oh, all right, what happened? Yeah. The parking lot bulldozer guy got a hold of that one. Yeah. But, uh, but no, but, uh, you know, for, or other examples of like, you know, Ron Mink, you know, all 18 greens or, you know, when you have all 18 greens existing that are amazing, you know, say like maybe even, um, you know, Somerset Hills or something like that, but that's a, that's easy. You, you don't have a lot of decisions. It doesn't scare you, but then B is kind of, there's been four or five blown up, uh, or six and you have to somehow blend them and then do the green expansions thoughtfully. And that's the Wakanda that I'm in, B. And then C is like, oh, they've all been blown up. You can do whatever you want. So like Northmore, they were all blown up. 
Tyler Ray could rebuild them all and I kind of could go with my own theme and I wasn't held to some standard. Um, same thing like at Detroit golf. Um, I just got off a zoom with them and we finished the master plan and everything. We met with the, the PJ tour and we're working with them on that. And the rocket mortgage was so great with Ricky winning this year. I was so happy about that, but their greens were all rebuilt by art Hills in 1988 and they're failing, you know, drainage, all that. It, they're, 30 some years old now and they were early kind of uh, takes on USGA greens. So they're getting ready to fail. And so we're going to rebuild them. And guess what? I get to redo all 18 or 20 because I'm doing the putting green and chipping. So 20 greens and I get to do my take on Ross. So it's liberating. It's very liberating. That's uh, it's a, an interesting note. I always feel like Detroit golf, like it was exciting when it got added. I haven't been there and, and you, you, it was excited when they got added. It's like, Oh, a, a Ross course and in an area of the country where I think you could make an argument is some, maybe his best work is Ohio and, and Michigan. Um, 100%. the best concentration of Donald Ross courses might be there. And then I watch it on TV and every year I'm just like, this just this course doesn't have much juice and and no. the greens you know it doesn't have the the topographical interest of its neighbors like Oakland Hills or Franklin Hills um you know the, you know even Barton Hills which i know you've worked at a really stunning piece of ground there but um you know the greens just like they you know it's like i i always watched it and was like these just i would expect a little bit more going on here given how flat everything else is and uh that makes a ton of sense especially when you go to like canton brookside which has wild ground and wild greens i mean that might be his his most extreme golf course out there right right it is oh there are greens out there 12 percent. you know that uh that sixth green and 16 and canton brookside is just off the charts you know it's like fun land yeah Um, what, what would you say in terms of, um, you know, you, you're now entering a different part of your career. You're, you're starting to get some new builds. You have a a new build on Long Island. Uh, I think it's called Spy Ring Golf Club that's opening this fall. You have a new project in Charleston area. Um, and you're doing a ton of restoration work. Which one, you know, which one do you prefer if you, if you had to pick one and, uh, and how do you see your career evolving with this new work coming in? Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That was kind of a two-part question there. That was good. Uh, you know, I think we're just giving, we're setting you up for long answers. Yeah, I know. Sorry. You know, your listeners will probably be like, gosh, this guy can't get this guy off of here. He talks the whole time, but, uh, but no, I think, um, you know, Andy, it, um, I never thought I would be in the position, to be honest. And my father asked me a couple of years ago and I said, you know, if I never build a course from scratch, I'll still die happy, you know, because I love restoration, renovation work so much. And I meant that truthfully. I didn't know if the job, I didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. And uh, especially then, I mean, there's just so few courses being built, you know, five years ago. Right. And, and now it's and, like completely yeah. different market for new courses right we're, we're i mean it's just gangbusters we looked at 20 some properties last year um all up and down the east coast all over new jersey new york north carolina everywhere we looked at properties and and we still have some potential owners right now looking at properties we're still maybe looking at one in new jersey out in the sand 
across from Philly, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, Be so a home game for you. You can see the Philadelphia skyline. It's amazing. So, uh, but we'll see if they can get it. Um, so it's so hard. New builds, that's the other thing too. It's like you have to secure the land. Then you have to get the funding. Then you have to get the permitting. Then you have to have potable water. Then you have to have three phase sewer. I mean, you have to have like nine things come to fruition all in the same spot. And, uh, and Tom, then it's just Tom's talked time. about that on the pod is just like how you, how the timelines can all get screwed up in that where like, Oh, I've budgeted and it's the hardest thing is I've budgeted this many people. We are allocated to do this. And then it's like, well, we couldn't get the permits. It's got to go next year. And that becomes a new challenge of, of, of timing and, and planning that, you know, <laughs> Yeah, the permitting is brutal. It really is. You have to start so early and and hope that everything, you know, work with a really talented engineer. And um, there's so many things Um, like the Charleston job right now. I spoke to them earlier this morning and we did all our soil samples, all our water samples. Um, We've graded the whole site. We've routed, you know, we came up with 19 different routings and Jim Ryan uh, actually, this is the funny thing is I don't have a, um, an ego. Sometimes I've worked with a lot of people who have big egos and it's like, you tell them you, you'd like show them something and they just ignore you. And I never wanted to be that person. So Jim Ryan actually came up with like a alternative routing on our Charleston, Charleston job. And I was like, Tyler, don't have a big ego. Let's just go look this out. Let's see if it works. And it ended up being uh, absolutely off the charts routing. So most of the routing on like my third new build is going to be from one of my associates, but it was so good. I, I couldn't say no, you know, but, but, um, but so he's got like probably 11 or 12 whole corridors there and then eight of seven or eight of mine, but it works so well. But, um, you know, I guess where we were going with this was, uh, you know, new builds and all that. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's just so hard to get them, I mean, all secured and they're so expensive. Land is so hard to find these days and good land. I mean, you can find flat yeah. land kind of anywhere in Florida. Like they're doing, everybody's flining. They're just going inland a little bit from Hope Sound and everything. But uh, in, but, into and the swamp, it's, it's uh, having been down there a lot of a lot of uh, times in my life. It is it's not yeah. desirable land in there. Yeah. There's a there's a dune ridge that that has some really great land, but that's I think probably when we start when you start talking about permitting and the availability of it is very difficult to get. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, but so, now, uh, now the Lake Wales area is is popping. That like central, you know, uh, sand belt seems to have a lot of projects that are going to be coming up in there. You know. Yeah, I know Steve Smyers has some stuff cooking. I've talked to him, and uh, you know, that's kind of the high, the highland, you know, uh, kind of the hill country of Florida, and yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, very cool there. Um, I know I talked to some folks there um, when Tony Nice was at Mountain Lake. Uh, the superintendent. Now he went to Apogee and uh, I know he's, um, he mentioned a bunch of stuff and yeah, there's a lot of stuff cooking in there. I mean, Florida is just so hot. It's unbelievable. And I don't mean hot temperature. I mean, it's like so hot. Multiple ways. It's so hot. Yeah. (laughs) Real, real estate, uh, temperature, golf, golf construction. It's got the trifecta. It is, it is, uh, they are killing it down there. But, um, but I guess, what was I? Uh, what were we getting back to? I guess your question was twofold. About there. new build, new build versus uh, versus uh, restoration. You know, if right. you if you had to if you had to choose one, which would you do? You know, the hard the hard question. Yeah, you know, we live in a world where you don't have to choose one, which is nice. So 
Right. right. I hope any prospective clients that are listening to this uh, don't take it as, oh, he doesn't want to do one of these. Right, right. No, it, uh, look, I'm just here to be candid. And if people can take it the way they want to take it, and all, so I'm going to tell the truth is new builds are really tough. And I've said it before, maybe even on that prior, the prior podcast we did way back when, you know, they suck the life out of you because they take 18 months to two years. And, I mean, it's, there's so much open dirt and, and, uh, so we first started talking to the Charleston clients back, gosh, August last year or September. So it's almost been a year already. And then we're planning the breakground in October and then it'll be another year of construction. So it won't open to probably November of 24. So there's that two year timeline, even longer than that. Um, you know, from kind of first talk to, fruition, you know, playing, hitting, hitting the first tee shot, but there's so much work involved. There's so many layers of it. Um, I love them. I really do. Cause it's liberating. I can't wait. I just cannot wait to showcase like what a Tyler Ray, I don't know, golf course is, but kind of like my style and like all the things that have influenced me, the more Fontaines, the, the trips that I've taken, you know, the Valderrama stuff, the, all the stuff from New Zealand and, and, um, Australia and all the, all the stuff out West, you know, the LACC and the Bel Airs and the, you know, the cool stuff you see in California where you are. And so I just can't wait to show, you know, like super fun, bold par threes. And then like, I have, I've had ideas forever on par fives because everybody talks about par fives, how they're so hard to make meaningful. And I have had ideas cooked up on par fives my whole life. And I uh, can't wait. Like, I know there's going to be some absolute stunners. I, I mean, it's impossible to make 18 incredible golf holes. You know, even Pine Valley, it, I mean, it's just so hard. I just don't want to have a duds out there, but I want 18 really good golf holes where it's hard to discern what's the best hole. Um, but anyway, but I want to, um, you know, uh, new builds are super liberating. They're very fun. Um, a lot of freedom. I mean, I'm picking the bunker style. I'm picking the green style. I'm picking grasses, soil. I mean, everything. You know, uh, this ownership has given me really a lot of carte blanche. Um, and then on Spiring, uh, that was another new build. And then I call Northmore a new build because we rerouted the property. I mean, there's nothing that looks anything similar. We raised parts of the golf course eight feet. We cut two five-acre ponds. Um, so it's like a Tyler Ray golf course now. I mean there was no Ross left. So when people say, Oh, you took a Ross course and you know, yada, yada, it's like, there was nothing left. Um, and so Northmore was probably our first new build inspiring now Charleston. So, um, you know, inspiring it's different than Charleston. Charleston is going to be super private. Um, you know, they're going to overseed and be like a winter club. Um, it's going to be the first private club built in Charleston, I think since Bulls Bay. Um, you know, there's like a six-year wait list everywhere in Charleston for golf. Whereas Spy Ring on Long Island, uh, Port Jefferson, north north part of the island, 50 miles out from the city. Um, it's oh, public. it's right by St. George's, huh? Yeah, St. George's is less than a mile away. And it's that same place topography. is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Really hilly, really cool property. 100-foot deep sand, all sand, like pure sand. Um, so really cool. Drains so fast, so it's going to be rock hard. I mean, you'll be able to freaking bounce it in from 30 yards out, which is the goal. 
So we have big open approaches. What's, big the, what's the client like there? Is it a, is it a private owner or is it a, it, uh, yeah, a, a, yeah, a private a developer? Yeah, okay. private developer. So not a municipal, but it is going to be public access. Um, there was an existing golf course there called Heatherwood. Okay. And it was like a par 60, you know, it had like eight par fours and then the rest par threes, but it had amazing land and it, it didn't really use the land properly. But um, so it's pretty vast for, um, you know, the golf course, but there is a housing element, unfortunately. So there's some interior housing, but it's really well done. It's gorgeous. They spent a lot of money to do everything right. You know, it's like a little gated community, beautiful pool, um, like almost like Cape Cod style housing with the, the beautiful like um, cedar shake, you know, uh, mm -hmm. siding and all that. And so at least it looks really good. And then the golf is just big fairways, big, gnarly, like corn Crenshaw style, rugged bunkers, and then big fun greens, not like Augusta so much, but. I wanted them, I wanted you to have like 20 different flag sticks on each green. Um, so it was, it was different every time you played it. Um, so that one's just not going to look anything like Charleston, <laughs> ironically. Um, you know, so that one's more like public. I wanted to get people through it. Not many hazards. There's one or two bunkers a hole, um, but super fun. Like everybody that I've talked to, it's just like the fun factor. You know, really fun greens, fun shots. The land is really cool. Um, but we just wanted people to come back, like, repeatedly. And Long mm -hmm. Island, there's so much hard golf. Like you just mentioned, you know, St. George's and, you know, all those clubs out there. It's hard. You know, it's really yeah. hard golf. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's, um, there, and there isn't a lot of public golf. There's not a lot of um, inspiring public golf, which is which is the other thing. I think when you New York is such a great, great place for golf, but like you have to have access for it to be, you know, like there are good public golf courses in New York, um, but they're busy um, and and there aren't a lot of good public golf courses. So that's a that's an important thing. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Lookout Mountain in that project. Uh, obviously. A crazy place. I mean, as as the name would suggest, Lookout Mountain. It's in it's on the Georgia Tennessee border, and uh, it is a, it was Seth Rayner. I I mean, there are a million courses that claim this. I feel like that Seth Rayner's last course. I believe he died during construction. Um, and it is you know at the time of its build, I believe it was the second or the most expensive course being built. It was it in Yale, so two you know Rayner golf courses there. Um, so this golf course, as the name would suggest, is a rainer on a mountain, on a freaking mountain. It is, it is a wild place. Um, it, you know, despite, I think it was, you know, I always, when I had gone there, I was like, God, this place could be so good with a, with a brush up because you could, you could see what it could be, but it, you know, it had gotten some good work that had gotten it from one era to, you know, where it was, where it was a really good golf course. And then, you know, you guys just finished that project. I, I believe you paired with uh, Kyle France there um, to, to, to create that, uh, that project. And if you were going to just, you know, give a, a short description of what Lookout Mountain is now, what is it? It's the best of Rainer. So before we broke ground, I went everywhere I could for months multiple times, multiple visits, Shore Acres, Chicago Golf, 
Blue Mound, which has maybe the best Rainer greens still existing. Uh, Fishers, Chicago, you know, Chicago golf has some of the best greens too for Rainer. Um, and we just tried to see every single Rainer we could and then make it the best 18 Rainer holes there were. Um, cause the plan, so we were very fortunate to have a plan, a Rainer plan, a Seth Rainer plan is like the rarest of the rare. You find them with Donald Ross all the time telling us, okay, great. Perry Maxwell Rainer. It's like, we have a little bit of a plan at mountain Lake and I think there's two or three, four others. I mean, there's not much that survived. So we had the full plan with every single bunker green shape, uh, even the green templates like, um, uh, 18 was the maiden. Uh, you know, we knew 16 was the short. We knew uh, 17 uh, was the double plateau. I mean, we knew the punch bowls. We knew we knew what every template pretty much worked. Funny, funny thing is though, the club on the scorecard had six of them wrong, just because you know it, it's hard. Yeah, people don't you know people aren't uh, as crazy about this stuff as we are. But so we worked with Doug Stein, the uh, green past green chairman and everything. And he's like, uh, one of my favorite guys in the world, but did he, he start the, the Rainer society? He right? Did, yes. He did. He started the Seth Rainer society guy. and he knows more about Rainer than anybody. Um, he's amazing. You know, him and Anthony Piapi probably, uh, know the most, but, um, anyway, so we worked with him. We got all the templates correct and he then agreed and we, we figured that all out. Um, and then we went from there and we took like the best pieces like the best, we kind of use like the best templates from these other clubs as like the guiding tool, um, and then riffed off of them a little bit. Um, but Andy, it is so bold. It, it's, I can't wait. Um, it's, it's fully grown in now. The greens are off the charts. I just can't wait. I hope people don't think it's too crazy, you know, but it's, because it's the land is so insane, but I truly believe it's going to be right there with Yale, Chicago golf, Fishers as the best, the best that Rainer has to offer. And um, I think it's only going to get better with age. You know, it's slowly going to get better every year, like four or five years from now. I think people are going to go visit and go, okay, you know, like this is, this is, you know, a masterpiece. And uh, we spent so much time down there. I personally shaped 18 out of 19 greens down there. There was one I didn't get on because my son was being born last August 17th. And so that week I didn't, I didn't get on the fifth green, but I got on all the others and with the dozer shaping and, and finishing. And so we put our heart and soul in there and we had Ben Warren and I can't say enough about Ben Warren, um, artisan golf. Uh, that's his company, but he works a lot in Japan and he's worked for Gill and Doak. I think he did, um, uh, for corn Crenshaw. He built the one out there North of, uh, Meadow club. Um, brambles, brambles. He built brambles with them, and and uh, he's my age, and we got along like peas and carrots. I love the guy. So he's from North Berwick, Scotland, and one of the most talented shapers I've ever seen in my life. We go out to dinner every night. We'd hang out. We talk about everything, and I couldn't have done it. And and you know, and same with Kyle. You know, Kyle obviously super talented. You know, um, has worked for everybody and and does a lot of great work on his own and. Um, so we, we teamed up because we felt like we were just so busy in both of our careers that if we could team up for a couple of jobs, maybe we can, they could be masterpieces, you know? And I said this probably a couple months ago, I think looking back on my career, 
I think in 20 years, I might look back on Lookout Mountain and, and same with Kyle. We're probably going to be like, it, I don't think we could do any better. You know, um, it might be the best work even then. Um, so, but Kyle, uh, yeah, he was, he's great. He's such a knowledgeable guy. I mean, he put his heart and soul into it and Ben Warren. And then we had a really great shaper, Eduardo Rojas, who shaped with Kyle a lot and Rich Labar. Like he did all the bunker work for Andrew Green at Oak Hill, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So he was no joke. Uh, so we had a freaking crew, us four pretty much. And it was like every day you'd build a green, you do this, and we'd all come look at it and and just meeting in the mines. But Ben Warren, I'm telling you, like he built the Redan because he grew up in North Burke. So he built the Redan, he worked on the Baritz, you know, some of those the ones that are so good. I think it's the best Redan in the world now. You know, right there with National Golf Links and then the <laughs> real one at North Barrett. It's a, it's a stunning setting. I mean, you're up on the uh, on the high hill just below the clubhouse looking down and off a mountain. I mean, it's an it's an incredible. That's I think the thing about the place that is just so you could see too, you could see how bold it once was. Um and that had been kind of covered up in just grass like so many places. And you just you put that with the with the just the sublime setting of playing golf on a mountain, and uh, you know it's I, I can't wait to get back there. Yeah, all the trees now are gone, so you see for hundreds of miles. You can see seven states, Andy. Seven. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, and there's a plaque that talks about that, so I'm not lying. <laughs> like it's actual fact up there. When you're on Lookout Mountain, you can see seven <laughs> states. But um, people oh never believe me. They're like, get out of here, and I'm like. I show people, I'm like, you see that plane, you know, like it looks like it's a thousand miles away, but you can see a plane taking off. I'm like, that's Louisville airport, Kentucky. Like that's how far you can see from there. So anyway, um, but, uh, to round off on that too, to finish up, um, you know, Doug Stein, I think the really cool part about this is he calls it a completion. So it's not a restoration or a renovation. It's a completion because Seth Rayner died during construction. And then they ran out of money and then they had a, a hurricane that came up from Florida and everything, the panhandle, and then just sat on Lookout Mountain and washed everything off of the golf course. They had just topsoiled and sprigged it in 20, I want to say, I want to say 26 was when that happened or early 27 because Rainer died in like January 26. He did the plans in 25 and, um, you know, so they had like a horrific 10 inch rainstorm washed everything away and they ran into so much rock like we had two rock hammers going the entire time and i'm talking andy like the biggest excavator I you've bet. ever seen I bet. <laughs> yeah we had two of them going the entire time just rock hammering um and so i think they never built the fairway bunkers because of the rock and the granite and they just built the fill pads and then some of the bunkers around the greens so he calls it a completion because the plan was never completed because of the money and the, and the, the rain event and all that. And so Doug Stein's got a great take on it and it's really cool. And, um, anyway, but that's lookout. I try to be as humble as possible, but it's hard to be humble about lookout. Cause I, we're so proud of that one. We really are. Just, uh, just as a, a personal anecdote from looking at, uh, the few pictures of it on your website, I, um, I just I'm so happy that the the Rainer bunkers are do not 
look like Tetris pieces as as they are interpreted at some places. There is some roundness to them. Sure, they, they have some geometric characteristics, but they are rounded bunkers. They yes. are not square edges that look like Tetris pieces. And I'll let everybody else put together the dots on those. Yeah, exactly. When people go and see... I don't want to name the places, but yeah. there was an interpretation. And this is my true believing, true belief on this is, you know, Brian Silva, a great architect. I have so much respect for him. He came into all these courses in the late 90s and early 2000s when people were finding out about Rainer and got a little carried away maybe with the edges and the corners like he did at Mount Lake and he did, you know, um, at... Country Club of Charleston, Charleston and yeah. you know, a couple others. Um, and when you see untouched Rainer, like at Fishers, St. Louis, um, Chicago, Chicago Golf, Golf, Shore Acres, there are, there's not one square or rectangular corner in any bunker on any aerial that you'll ever find. And then when you look at the, the Lookout Mountain master plan from Rainer in 25, there's not one square bunker. They have beautiful shapes and rounded. They look like submarines. And so if you look at any historical data, Fishers, Yale, any of this stuff, it, there's been this weird misconception by guys. They get to Rainer courses and they don't travel enough. They don't go see everything. And they just look on the interweb and they go, oh, that's Rainer. And it's very depressing. I, yeah. I'm, it, it bugs me more than you would ever imagine, Andy, because it's so... It's like lazy. so lazy. It's so lazy. Um, I think it's important to note too with the Brian Silva stuff is that he was when he started doing the Rainer work, there was so little information available. 100%. Like you, we we I, like there needs to be a preface of like yeah. where golf architecture and restoration has gone over the last thirty years from when he was he was starting this Rainer revival, and he deserves so much credit for restoration 100 percent, and i like him a lot great personality yes, he's amazing he amazing yeah. personality but you know what um, he he has learned i mean he got it so close except for maybe the cornering of the bunkering like the green pads and all that the scale he got really close and it's amazing how well he did but if you look at metairie what he just did so like he restored metairie which is a rainer down in in uh, new orleans last year and then if you look at like the first Rainer he restored, uh, maybe in 2000, uh, maybe a Mount Lake, I think was maybe his first, I'm not sure. You can see his growth. And now like at Metairie, there aren't square bunkers and weird corners like that. I think he nailed it. Um, and so all the kudos in the world, because that dude, he really shed the light on it. And if you go to Black Creek there, which where Doug Stein mm-hmm you know, is, is the man down at Black Creek, um, just two or three miles from Lookout Mountain uh, Club. I mean, there are some unbelievable holes by Brian Silva. It was a Brian Silva original and it's phenomenal. There are some great holes. The punch bowl there, Alps punch bowl is like maybe the best there is. Um, Mm -hmm. and some of his takes on that, on those, on those holes are phenomenal. So yeah, all the kudos in the world to Brian. Um, you know, Gil is, Gil gets it. He gets Seth Rayner, you know, you see his work. I can't wait to see Yale, but you see his work at Fishers and stuff like that. Um, and, and Kyle understood that too. Kyle Franz and I, we both agreed and um, we totally understood where we had to go with that. Yeah. 
All right, real quick, last question. I know you're a big golf traveler. You love seeing new courses. What are, uh, you know, it's been six years or five years, whatever, <laughs> um, since our last conversation. Curious what, um, give me give me three courses that are new to you in that time that kind of knocked your socks off that, that uh, you know, they could be big names or, or give me one sleeper in there too. French Lick, boom. French Lick, Indiana, Ross course, maybe the best set of Ross greens. I mean, they're wild. They're like a little over the top. Um, I've been there now three times. I went back in May because I just like, I can't get enough of it. And it's so hard to get to. You have to like fly into Evansville, Indiana. (laughs) Yeah, I flew into Louisville or I flew out of Louisville. I flew into Evansville, Indiana. Each way, it's a couple hours. Um, But I wanted to see Victoria National too. And I stopped in to see them. And that one, maybe the best Fazio. Um, mm-hmm. but French lick, I mean, it's just like, it's early Ross too. It's 1915, 1916, 1917, like for how bold he built the greens and the bunkering, it looks like a rainer course. Um, cause it's so bold, but Pete Dye, I always like before Pete passed, I wanted to ask him, he knew who built that for Ross, the constructor. And I never heard the name. And I wish I, that was, if I had one question for Pete Dye before he died, you're like, Pete, who built French Lick for Ross? Because it 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 influenced Pete Dye. That's how awesome it is. Um, so that one, Andy, is number one. Probably number two would be um, what has shocked me. You're like kind of like um, you know, definitely on the Langford when I've been on this Langford kick. I'm always I'm always shocked where you'll find a Langford or Moreau and there'll be like two greens remaining that are just like mind boggling, uh, you know, like, like 16 holes of duds. And then like two of the most incredible greens you've ever seen. Um, there's a course called Ozaki in Wisconsin It's just South of, I think it's right around Milwaukee country club and all that, that whole district, just North of Milwaukee. It's in near Mequon. Yeah. Mequon. Yep. Just South of West Bend and, and all that. Um, but my, Buddy Brett, the superintendent I went to UK with, Kentucky, and I've stopped in. I've probably been there four times. But this last visit, I really had like an epiphany because it was built the same year as Wakanda. So 1921, early Langford. We call it early because it's before his, he really got cooking. Um, so it's the same year as Wakanda. So I just wanted to see the similarities. And it was like, I was like a kid out there. I was laughing. I was giggling. I was out there all by myself, like 4 p.m. to dark, uh, maybe a month and a half ago. It was like the best day of the year because I couldn't believe it it was identical to Wakanda in the sense that like there's six world-class greens out there. Great land too. Great land. But then there's like six that almost don't look like Langford holes, like somebody totally blew up. You know, somebody came in in the 80s and like rerouted. But the stuff that's sitting there, there's a fourth, I think it's the 14th hole. It's a par three up the hill. It's the best par three that I've seen. It has so much complexity in the green and these big rolls and these big valleys. It's like number two at Culver, but better. You know, number two Culver, kind of the Redan. Um, that blew my socks away because somebody asked me recently, like, oh, where would you want to work if somebody called you, you know, in the next couple of years? And I was thinking like, Man, I could really, I could really have some fun at Ozaki. Like yeah. we could crush it there, and like, ah, 
it would be like the number one course other than maybe Lasonia or Sand Valley and stuff in or Milwaukee and in, in uh, Wisconsin, we could bring it up um, to that stratosphere. And the funniest thing is the other one, the third one is right up the road at Sheboygan country club, Pine Hills. Um, Pine Hills is insane. You know it. Cause you've been there a bunch, but they called me five years. You know, when I was at Beverly on a bulldozer when they called and I'm like, Pine Hills. It sounded like another, the name, like the name, the name yeah. is like so misleading because it's like, it sounds like a generic, like, it, yeah. you know, Pine Hills is like a clip art version of a golf course name. Okay. Right. So I remember they, they called Andy, the funniest story. I'm on like the 12, 12th green at Beverly and I'm sitting there in the dozer. Cause I remember it like yesterday and I'm like, yeah, I didn't answer the phone cause I had the music going and we're, we're, we were motoring. But I listened to the voicemail when I got off the dozer at dark and, and I look up Pine Hills. So I type in Pine Hills on my phone, 30 courses come up. I couldn't figure out which one. So I was like, where is this? Where's this guy calling me from? Is it like Pine Hills in, in Texas? Is it Pine Hills in California? So anyway, so the funny thing, so long story short, I go up there and I'm walking around with a committee and I'm like, oh, one's good. Ooh, yeah, two's really good. Wow, three's cool. Man, four's great. I mean, we got through like 10 holes and I'm like, why am I here? This place is so good. You don't even need me. You just need to cut down some trees. And uh, honestly, honestly, I think like it could be the best course in Wisconsin. It, it could be. It could be. It could be top 40. It could be top 40 in America. I mean, this it, thing, is, oh. it is so insanely good. And it, it nobody ever talks about it because of the Kohler courses. Right. And it's like, that's that's the most fun course in town. It's that's the one that's the most fun to play. Like Whistling Straits is gorgeous. It's on the on the lake. There's some really cool stuff at Whistling Straits. It's amazing what they did with Earthwork there. And it's in but like from just a, a a knock your socks off golf architecture experience. There are very few. Like you walk out to to Pine Pine Hills is just insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you leave there and you're like, "All right, what's the worst hole?" And you can't I mean, like I came up with a 16th, the par three, I kind of told them in my interview process, like we could cut down the trees, move the cart path, you know, shift this a little bit, but I wouldn't touch the other 17. I just cut trees down. Like the whole interior of 18, the big boomerang hole with the big yeah, cliff. They, they did that too. It's they it's did. unbelievable. The difference, the difference it made. I, I actually have before and after footage. I've been meaning to post something on it. Oh, Maybe we'll should. do it now. Yeah, you should. But it, um, I didn't win that one. I was runner up. Uh, and I, I should have done it for free. Like, I don't even know what I was, I, I wasn't focused at the time. Cause I was like, so into Beverly and like, I kind of went up there and I don't think I, I don't think I had a good interview. And, uh, I really, that's the number one, number one course. I wish I, I had garnered cause it is like playland. Um, but the funny thing is it wouldn't have helped me get any other work because of, Nobody knows it. Nobody knows it. So you could do world-class work and make it even better, but it's just the weirdest thing. Like, I don't even understand why Golf Digest and like ran more set and, and, uh, like I typed in, so I'm on the, you know, whatever the panel for, um, golf magazine. And I, he, there's a write-in at the bottom, like, Hey, tell us if we've missed anything. I've written in Pine Hills every freaking year on Rand's thing. Like, hey, Rand. I think he finally went there. I yeah. saw something about it. But yeah, I, I feel like we've been uh, banging the Pine Hills drum for years. Yeah. It's uh, 
I mean, they have, uh, you know, listeners there. They have one of the best national memberships in, in the in the country, too. Oh, yeah. Like, I'd be a member there like tomorrow. A, I mean, I really incredible, would. Incredible, incredible national membership, uh, especially for people from Chicago. It's but like they um, a no brainer. Uh, if they uh, they hired Drew Rogers, who's a UK alum, too. And I like him a lot. Great guy. I really get along with Drew. I have a ton of respect for him. So they're in great hands. And um, all they got to do is remove trees and open it up and get the and natives. Expand greens. Expand greens. I mean, it's... Fairways, too. Yeah. And it, it, uh, I think he'll get all that right. And I'm telling you, it's got to be in the top 100. Like Brookside made a leap into to number 96 this year. I mean, Pine... If Brookside did it, Pine Hills has to be in the top 100, you know, in the, in the coming Speed. years. There's yeah. a there's a course in Chicago that I played a ton in my 20s called uh, Big Run that mm. Harry Smead did. It's been monkeyed with, but you still you see some of the crazy stuff like there's not a ton of it left, but it's it's embroiled in some housing development thing. I mean, if you were talking about a public golf course in in Chicago that you could take and, you know, with five million dollars make off the charts there, there's three that come to mind It's Kankakee Elks, uh, Big Run, and then you Spring Valley, which is technically in Wisconsin, but it's forty-five minutes from the city. It's still, so. yeah. I think some people are trying to get on that. I think they're trying. Uh, a to lot buy of that. people are. A lot of yeah. people are sniffing around. That's, you know, what, though, uh, to be honest, we took a Jim and Ryan, and I know we got to wrap up here, but Jim Ryan and I took a deep, deep dive uh, recently, and spent like real meaningful days really looking at the architecture. And unfortunately, I think Kankakee. Below Spring Valley out of the water. Spring Valley, the Spring Valley is just a little boring. Spring Valley is in a better spot, though. It's a right. better. It's like you're. You got Lake Geneva. You got the northern suburbs. You've got like it's. It's just like Kankakee Elks is that difference between forty five minutes from city center versus Kankakee Elks, like hour twenty. That's yeah. a that's a huge difference. Yeah. But Kankakee Elks, I think Kankakee Elks could be one of the four best courses in Illinois, full stop. Yep, yep. It, it, it has everything. The greens have so much character. The layout's oh. incredible. The bunkering's all there. They could cut down the trees. They're trying to, I think. If they got back the old volcano part three, what, 13 yeah. or 14 it's just out sit, there? Sit, just it's sitting, sitting there. There's a flag in it. Somebody put a flag in it last time we were there, they, which was great. I, I got so excited because the, the last time I was there, they had a mower on it. And I was like, <sighs> They're mowing it out, but they stripped the green of all the green grass. Um, so they'd have to resod it. And, yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's just so funny that one par three that they bypassed it for. That they, it makes no the, sense. The, a, the, a pro built allegedly a pro built it in like 1980 and he was and he just pushed it up. It's it's covered in shade all year. Then you have this terrible walk back to the next <laughs> tee. It's just uh it, but yeah, that place, that place is amazing. There's, there's, um, you know, the, the opportunity for great sh- public golf in Chicago exists, but unfortunately it is so far away from having great public golf. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry um, to real, add, end it on a dire no, note, but what, real, real, real quick, quick what, I real quick, I, since you always are asking all the questions, I got to ask a question for the audience here. You right. asked me the three courses that I thought were really cool that it, you know, we haven't discussed or whatever. What are your three in all your travels? Because I know you're on the road a lot. So give us three real quick. All right. Recent. This is recency bias. I, uh, St. George's is out of this world. <laughs> like that, that go, the land, the, the, 
there's it's got like a little bit of everything right i hadn't seen like devro emmett at like at you know i'd seen garden city which is you know a lot of devro emmett which was great but like it's got some quirk it's got some some funk it's got some of those like holes that you could take and just put on national golf links or shinnecock and be like oh this is just one of the holes like the 12th hole out there you know that finishing stretch is amazing but then it's got like that cool Oh, is it 10? The like kind of like side winding short par four that with the like punch bowl green at that yeah. da- right on the on, on the, the road, road. Like, yeah, the road yeah, you're like, like the this is so right there. Yeah, it's like so funky and cool. So I would put uh, that in there. Um, let's see. Let me think about what else I've seen recently. I well, I, I, this is just going to be a New Jersey thing because uh, I mean, New Jersey golf in general is amazing, but I couldn't believe how good Essex County was um, in New Jersey, right? Like they're going to do this Gil Hans renovation. I kind of was like, oh, we're going to see it before it gets renovated. And I was like, God, this isn't like very far off from being like really, really good. You know, the same thing. I walked it. I thought they had already done the renovation or restoration. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Gil crushed it here. And they're like, oh, no, we haven't done it yet. And I'm like, what? Yeah, I walked it like three years ago and thought it was mind-boggling good. Yep, yep. And then a third. Um, let's see. This is the this is where it gets tough. Uh, a third new course from this year. Uh, recently, I mean, I went to Scotland, which is hard because like all all the stuff over there. Um, really. Um, you know, if I was going to pick one in Scotland, uh, I've talked about this on this pod a lot. Is Ely um was yeah. one that uh i think there was like a lot of things going on in my life i was i had i had gotten off the mat with food poisoning like from two days earlier that was like debilitating to me yeah. and it was just this like you know wednesday of the open championship i had been at st andrews all day and got on it and we're racing against the dark but the the routing out there is just it's just a, a magical journey you know mm-hmm. the way you that the whole, I think just in general, the whole in the, any course that starts in town and you venture away from town and you have like this, this journey out, just like it, you know, North Barrick has it, St. Andrews, the old course has it, um, Ely has it. There's just something so special about leaving town and then coming back like that. It just sets such a, um, it makes the round a, a trip right and and that's just such a beautiful thing but with like ely the way you bounce back and forth i thought from the ocean yeah. versus like you know staying like getting out there right away and like blasting it early or you know like the way it jogs between it you know gives you looks takes you away brings you back and then you think it's over like that that one to me um that's the one you know, it's funny. I saw North Barrick. I saw Muirfield. I saw the, I played the old course the Tuesday after the open. I think about all those courses a lot, but the one that I want to get back to the most is mm. probably Ely yep. and North Barrick. Those are the two that I really want to, and, and, and it's not fair to the old course because I spent an entire week walking around the old course and then I played it. Right. Like, so I, you know, I've walked around that one probably 10 times at this point in my life um, versus Ely. It was just this one we finished in the dark. It was pitch black and it was just like, God, I just want to get back there. So they still have a periscope on the first tee. uh, Oh yeah. 
Yeah. It's amazing. I haven't been there a couple of years and oh, I, like 2015, I think was my last visit there. Oh, did I've Spring Valley Did Spring Valley still have the Periscope on uh, hole hole 12? Oh gosh. The plastic, I think so, yes. the plastic PVC yes. pipe. Yeah, yeah, cuz I actually <laughs> drove Jim over to see it cuz we actually borrowed a cart there. Uh and he was like, "What is this?" And I'm like, "You won't even believe it." I'm like, "It's uh it's pretty bad." Yeah. Yeah. It's uh all right. Hey, thanks so much for the time. Uh, everybody can follow along. You you occasionally post on Instagram and Twitter, um, but uh, you know your your handles are there, and I can't wait to see uh, your new work as well as uh, some of your recent uh, restoration work. And congrats on all the growth. And uh, you know it's 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 fun to see um, some of the 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 next generation of architects getting um, great opportunities. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, for sure. And I uh, no, my wife. And my family have kind of gone gotten after me about social media. So I'm I have like a one one post a week, and I'm doing more <laughs> stories. And I posted like three times last year, uh, and everybody's like, "Dude, all my friends, everybody's telling me I have to be more social media oriented." So uh, I am making a big push, and I'm going to put a lot more stuff out there. I'm taking the drone with me everywhere, so people are going to see a lot more Beverly, Northmore, Wakanda, Mount Lake. You know, look out. Charleston, Spy Ring, Detroit, so Brayburn. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Tyler. We'll talk soon. All right, Andy. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. As a quick reminder, uh, Club TFE's humming. We got lots of stuff up there. Uh, we put up a Ballyneal video, routing Ballyneal video with Tom Doak last week, which has gotten rave reviews. It's it's a phenomenal watch. I um, you know I didn't have any part in it, so I can I can say that. I, I guess I shot a little bit of footage, but Cameron threw it together, um, and it's a video interview with Tom talking about routing uh, Ballyneal. It's really great. On top of that. Um, one big announcement we have a member guest coming to club tfe we're going to be doing more uh events uh for members in club tfe in the coming probably next year we'll we'll have more but you know more opportunities for club tfe members to uh to play some cool places we're doing a member guest it'll be in northern california um it's in october end of october um so if you want to be a part of that, the best way to get involved with those events are through Club TFE. Uh, you can sign up at thefriedegg.com slash membership. It's $120 a year, and it's really the best way to support what we do here. So thank you, guys, and uh, we will be back next week with some new episodes of the Friday Egg Podcast.